yarn pinters here to uh, run the run the show. All the big guys are at work. The parents are gone, so we're gonna play. We're gonna play yeah. without any. What do these buttons do? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they shouldn't have it's, left a pot of coffee on either. It's dangerous. <laughs> well, anything could happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eric, no Eric Burke to let down. <laughs> yeah, well, he he might surprise us and pop in later. We'll see what time he he's able to yes. pull away from work. Sounds like he's busy being a grocery store dad. Well, inventory is no joke on that dad. scale. Yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> so if he's working on inventory stuff, I don't I don't blame him. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Good morning, yeah. everyone in the chat or Good afternoon, morning. depending where you're at. I realize it's afternoon on the East Coast, so mm. and probably like evening in Europe other parts of the world yeah, yeah all these time zones <laughs> yeah but uh check out the new the new mug i have one too but as i mentioned uh to riley before we started i didn't plan ahead and it's in the dishwasher but next week for sure <laughs> it's deliciously good for holding coffee yeah they're they're pretty and cool. it's stylish yeah so if you guys want to get a carpets and coffee mug all you got to do is go to the teespring store type in npr, NPR store. store yeah yeah <laughs> i'm stoked these finally came in we were talking about it. we're like hey where are they by the way they should have come and then literally yeah. next morning we both got them <laughs> i think they kind of got lost in that christmas shipping debacle right because it took a yeah. long time but yeah. thankfully yeah it was funny uh, we I, both got them on the same day <laughs> yeah shipping shipping has been wild around here you know hats off to everybody at the post office and fedex and ups and all that stuff those guys are just mad people yeah men and real. women men and women i wonder I, I would love to know the stat of like how much cardboard consumption has gone up oh my quarantine. god Dude. it's yeah my apartment unit here like we all share a recycling bin right mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. overflowed every week like we just oh, yeah. pile everything up next to it and we're like i'm so sorry you know yeah. <laughs> mr recycling guy <laughs> well at least none of your uh none of your neighbors are throwing couches out there for the homeless people to make themselves at home on oh dear mm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well that's not recyclable either <laughs> no no that's not how garbage disposal works for large items like that <clears throat> <clears throat> fyi but uh yeah so um lucas and i are here shooting the you know what while uh while the while the ogs are away but eric might might be able to pop in at some point and um yeah we're just we all know, wish hard enough he'll yeah get home <laughs> yeah he'll find his hobbit way home <laughs> <laughs> yeah so as per the usual we don't have anything scheduled planned or structured yeah. for this show it's literally the more we do it the, the more i feel like it's an accumulation of what's going on in our collections, what's going on outside that we pay attention to. And then just kind of our current thoughts and current right. events. It's almost like, uh, just if stream you, of conscious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and every time we have a carpet fest or something, the best conversations happen around like the bonfire mm. or over a cigar, you know, while everybody's having drinks or cooking the food and getting to meet everybody. And, and, I can't help but anytime I'm in those moments, I, I like have this awareness of like, man, if there was only some way to capture this, because right. this is the this is the good stuff you don't see, 
or here. Um, Absolutely. And, and the so, really cool thing too about mm -hmm. like this live format here is that it, even right now, it's not just the two of us, like all you guys here in the chat, if there's anything on your mind, anything going on in your room, anything you want to talk about this morning, like hit us up in the chat, you know, yeah. we can always pull things out of our brains, but mm -hmm. if there's something you want to touch on out there, you folks, let's do oh, it. Oh yeah. I, I already know one individual is going to drop a bit of a controversial question in here. It'll be funny to unpack. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> that'll be coming at some point. He's already let me know he's coming. <laughs> Is that controversial? You had to check in advance. <laughs> no, but no, no. It, it's it just revolves around hybrids, and you know mm. how I am about those. Yeah, that's um, loaded. Yeah, you know how I am about those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, good morning to everybody there. I see a bunch of people hopping in. Steven, Ismail, Jack. Hey, Carly. Good to see you here, Craig. Oh, yeah, that's right. The 20 ounce mugs. I don't think T3 oh, yeah. offers bigger sizes, but if they did, that would be sweet. We'll have to find out. Oh, Brandon Valentine. You triggered me with that question. Anybody uh, see Ricky Mack up? Yes. And I he did posed for it. it. Yeah, he posed yeah. for it and made it this whole spectacle, even though he nearly died. And that Taipan had to waste a bunch of useful venom that it relies on to catch food. But right. what do I know? And, you know, he didn't have to pin him behind the head. Yeah, and the there picture, were no notice how there were no tools used. Yeah, he the got picture what he before asked for. he was in the hospital was him literally holding two, one in each hand, you know, behind the head. It's like, all right, if you we, we call that not a just Darwin award. one, let's get two. <laughs> yeah, that, that's called yeah. a Darwin Award. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that he's all right. He's a lucky, lucky, lucky guy, you know, mm. and I can only hope that it serves as a wake up call. But Eh. That doesn't seem to happen with eh. a lot of these folks. Does it doesn't it? happen, which is why I'm more of a fan of the uh, the harsher alternative. The really mm -hmm. like you can't ignore these results. Like sometimes somebody has to get hit by a car, right? Well, Tyler <laughs> to realize Nolan it's not good to walk in the freeway. Yeah, he got bit by a king cobra, didn't he? That Tyler Nolan guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's move on. I don't want to talk about those. Buttons. We don't have to. No, they're This they're is terrible. our show. It's yeah. our time down here. They're down terrible. Here, it's our time. Uh, Jack <laughs> Oliver says he ordered a sea serpent rack. I actually just paid my shipping invoice the other day, so I've got uh, a sea serpent's rack coming in the mail. Sweet. Might be the same one. Yeah, nice. Another stack of, uh, another stack of baby tubs. Um, nice. And that should put me at, you know, like about 100 capacity for the season which is looking like i'll need it so <laughs> that's awesome yeah i'm excited to hear uh what you think of that rack i have the the incubator from them yeah and the build quality is really good but um, i have uh they used to i don't think they still do they used to just sell little 18 um 18 hatchling racks with the same dimensions and everything but it was just a standalone 18 and i bought two of those because they're stackable and I love them. Absolutely love nice. them. They've traveled up the state with me in my move. They've been nothing but perfect the entire time. And, uh, and, and now that I went to go buy some more, they didn't have those, but they had one big stack of them on, on casters. And I believe it's set up in two zones of heat tape as well. Um, like a top and a bottom. So, uh, I'll be really excited when that gets in here, do some room rearranging and I'll have to film something about that. Cause yeah. I'm, I'm going to reorganize and kind of try and have as much of the hatchlings all in one area. Nice. Um, yeah. Some, well, some stuff behind me. So like all of this space right 
here will be like hatchling racks as much as I can do do nice. in there. And then uh, yeah, next step That's is a awesome. house. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we're both gonna have to do some rearranging. Like uh, like I was telling you in the uh, in the green room, I also just ordered uh some new goodies, a six foot cage, which I've been talking about for months, right? But I finally got it together to actually do it. So yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because it's definitely going to have to take up a completely new zone, right? Mm -hmm. I have like the four foot stack behind me. Mm -hmm. Next to it's a three foot stack. Mm -hmm. So I guess we have to start a six foot stack somewhere. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Um, are you running each uh, enclosure controlled with individual settings? Yes, um, I do have a couple Herpstat 2s that are controlling multiple enclosures, but... Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, besides my my big ARS rack, everything's on its own stat. Um, gotcha. Which honestly, like that that probably doesn't have to be that way. But the way well, that I've the reason why I ask is just because mm -hmm. like I've recently had some experience where like if you've got one controller running multiple enclosures and you've got various bedding in there, mm -hmm. yeah. like paper in one or cocoa in another, you're getting completely different temperatures in there, right? So right, right. like we've been calibrating some of the blood Python racks at work because we've been putting them on uh, cocoa just for the, the laying season. Nice. So yeah, no, it's thought. true. Like the reason that I have it that way is because I have literally kind of expanded everything one cage at a time. And it's like, Oh, mm -hmm. there's another cage. I need another thermostat, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. yeah. rather than pausing and thinking, Oh, I could just put one probe in the middle and control all of them. But, uh, well, that the thing is you get, you get variants top to bottom. Like right, right. now my, uh, my room is reading like 70 degrees ambient, but the probe, if it's touching the floor, it's like three degrees colder. Exactly. And so with like, with that in mind, I do like the freedom to really dial in each one properly, you know, because yeah. my bottom cage here, I will have to set it differently than the top cage. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it'll, it'll, uh, you know, it'll actually right. run hotter the way that I have my stuff set up because it will be colder, which means right. the probe will send more power. And yeah. exactly. So, so I actually use that to my advantage um, by mm. placing species in certain areas that I know will experience things differently. Like the bottom cages being cooler. Um, right. They uh, that's where I throw my Bradley or um, like I actually have a rack that's all set for pythons, but the bottom tub, I've completely moved the heat cable as far off to the side and shrunk, shrunk the, the spot and being on the floor, it's actually several degrees cooler and I keep an adult male rainbow in there. So, Sweet. so that's how I can sort of play with that to my advantage. But I, I, as inefficient and more price, uh, pricey as it may seem to do a stat or something per cage it does give you better control for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when I do rearrange, when that cage gets here, I should probably also take advantage of the fact that in this room, I have an outer wall and an inner wall. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I should probably put the brettles and stuff that's better with the cold on the outer wall. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 That's definitely something to think about. If anybody's like, currently dialing in a snake room or thinking about it like those are some variables you really do need to to pay attention to also like whatever your flooring is makes a big difference obviously mm -hmm. if you've got carpet in a snake room which is 
unfortunate and I've dealt with that. <laughs> that means enjoy, there's enjoy getting all the substrate out of that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you better get a good vacuum. And yeah. uh and then you have like a layer of insulation below that and your snake room won't get as cold, it'll behave differently versus if you've got like a wood laminate down. I prefer the wood laminate because I like to be able to get it cold. I'd rather have things get cold and have to work to keep them warmer than have no control trying to cool them down. Because mm-hmm. a, uh, a little heater with the stat is much more affordable than an air conditioning unit with a stat. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you do what you got to do and you know how your room works better than, than anyone else externally. So you just have to, it's just something you play with. Like the first mm-hmm. year after I moved up here, it was it was my focus like for an entire year, every day, what I was doing was like shooting temperatures, checking that the thermostats, like just being anal retentive about it. So mm-hmm. yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. When I moved yeah. places it again, I think I said last week, we talked about this a little bit. I had to recalibrate everything. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it, it is. It took a long time too. I feel like for me personally, it was a big part of my like, journey or evolution as a keeper and by that it's i mean experience. i struggled with it a lot just yeah. with probe placement like yeah but that was so you tricky learn <laughs> but you learn that was the most like yeah like i've tried everything you're never gonna that. forget that is the most impressionable way of learning hands-on yeah. yeah like when i was first starting out one of the things i remember freaking out about was where to put the probe and i even like drilled a hole in the mm-hmm. half mm-hmm. log hide yeah. and like tied the probe to the hide and put it yeah, right man. there and yeah but every time the snake would sit on it and then oh like, yeah get, get yeah that is a challenge <laughs> i finally just settled on always screwing it to the back of the enclosure on the back mm-hmm. wall mm-hmm. like under under the heat source but yep that that's going to be a distance away from the heat source right which yeah i see a lot of folks resor- resorting to that sort of yeah. probe placement so Um, I didn't want to let this question get lost because we're getting some good ones in here that I want to address as well. But um, Ismail uh, asks, when do you start your young Morelia on cycle feeds? Me personally, right away. Um, Mm. I I actually just gave my yearlings um, their first meal a few days ago, uh, about a week ago. And I've got uh, a bunch of rodents thawing right now to start giving, uh, a few more animals, their first meals as it's starting to get a little bit warmer here. Right. I'm doing the really gradual warm up over the next like three weeks or so. So by the time March hits, everything will be back to its normal temperatures. Everybody's had a hot spot, but it just drops at night. And what I'm doing is slowly reducing that, that night drop babies. Um, I actually haven't been able to give them a controlled, like hot spot drop at night, but because of where they're at by the window and how cold their ambient drops. So at least for the first year right now, they do get a, an ambient nighttime drop. Um, they still have access to their hot spot, um, which is a little bit cooler. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I just don't feed them and I got to keep a close eye on them because with that hot spot still on, you know, they're still able to, uh, burn calories and things. So you want right. to make sure you're not letting your babies deteriorate. So ideally, um, you know, once a new thermostat comes in, cause with my new rack, I've got another, t- uh, deal channel VE 300 coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love those stats. Nice. Um, I'll be able to give uh, all my hatchlings full-time night drops. So 
that'll be better. But I think the logic behind it and what I see is that if you condition them to that experience early on, by the time it comes to adulthood, their body is ready for it. Right. Uh, especially if you're diligent about, you know, giving them time to digest and clear out their system before you really start cooling yeah. and then do it gradually and then in reverse. And um, I think it just makes for a hardier animal. We know with reptiles, sometimes less is more. We know that they have an interesting biology that is very mm-hmm. counter to what mammalian biology is, what our instincts tell us to feed, feed, feed and keep them warm and all of this stuff. But um, they're tougher than we give them credit for. A lot of them need that night drop. Like back in the day when people were first starting to keep diamonds, they were killing them left and right because they weren't giving them a night drop, things like that. So I think uh, every time I conceptualize it, I I think of it uh, like a car battery. If you're just running it and running it and running it full speed all the time, you're going to burn that out really fast. Whereas if you give it time to rest and recharge and things like that, you get more longevity out of that battery. And so, uh, you know, not to equate snakes to batteries, but you know, (laughs) as far as their biology works, it's being ectothermic. Your name will be Duracell. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, you're on to something there. But uh, I agree completely. And the cycle feed thing is something that I kind of, learned to adopt just this year Mm -hmm. um so before this year i was kind of feeding everything just throughout Um, it's like a normal passage getting into reptiles yeah something you don't learn right away so you just kind of feed for sure (laughs) yeah i mean and so with the adults right they're not eating right now because they're very cold Mm -hmm. um and then i don't know at least the way i'm doing it so far is kind of tier specific i guess you could say like the the yearling kind of things the younger the juveniles right i'm still feeding a little bit but Mm -hmm. a lot less often Mm -hmm. and they're getting cold at night but still Mm -hmm. getting heat during the day and then so far for the the baby babies the uh inlands and the roughy um i am not really cycling their food i'm feeding them like i would but they are definitely getting colder. Would you cycle them had they arrived in your collection earlier and gotten more established under your care, say months prior? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. that it's just a matter of me wanting to make sure they're actually feeding. Right? Yeah, like I only yeah. have two meals in them so far. I think that's um, appropriate to do with new snakes at this time of year, for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't want to get new animals that I I don't know exactly how they're doing yet, right? And right. just not attend to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, feeding is um, a good sign of vitality in snakes generally. Right, so. but you know, next season I'll, I'll certainly cycle them. And, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. And I know folks that, that will still offer their breeding adults a meal once a month, just something small to make sure they still have that caloric, you know, mm-hmm. base. And they also use it as a way to gauge where their females are at. Um, and I think it's to be expected that males probably won't eat, uh, cause they're so focused if they're focused, but you know, Right. It's just, you know, everybody does a little bit differently. Um, everybody's seasons start and change a little bit differently. Like you and I are across, you know, a hundred miles or something like that mm, from one yeah. another or whatever it is, but our climates are entirely different. For sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, similar, but definitely different. Uh, and Different enough where they don't build air conditioning into the houses. Yeah, here, and yeah, yeah. Would die. I would die without <laughs> Here. Yeah, literally, because yeah. this summer it'll get 90 degrees and it'll be 90 degrees at night. Yeah, and it'll exactly. suck. Yeah, it'll suck. 
So I hate that. Oh, dude. So do my Kribos. So do my Kribos. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot to cycle feeding and there's a lot to think about when getting animals conditioned and ready for it. I think if you mm-hmm. take an adult that's been fed year after year, nonstop, and then all of a sudden <laughs> cut off, it might freak out a little bit, but right. you know, if it's really fat and healthy, then maybe not. But, mm-hmm. and then Ryan Cox had a great question. Do you use pulse heating on racks or on off stats? I personally try to use uh, pulse proportional on everything. Yeah, same. Yep. I do the same. Yeah. It's like just better. It's the most responsive and consistently accurate for what you're aiming for. Not to say that a little fluctuation isn't harm harmless, you know what I mean? Like it's not going to cause any problems really, but um yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. I, I I don't know. I haven't really put much thought into why I chose that. It just kind of the time seemed like the cooler higher tech option so i was like "Ooh, fancy <laughs> yeah to me um it's more responsive and to me that means your control and the ability to weed out any potential errors and extreme mistakes is is better so mm-hmm. i don't know it just makes me feel a little bit more in control i really can't wait for the standard of thermostats to include Wi-Fi access for phone access, like what yeah. Spider Robotics is doing. I can't wait for that to be the standard across the board because, you know, I've got cameras and I've got a thermostat for my room heater that I can check from my phone anywhere. Mm. You know, we just got to put it in these these uh, enclosure thermostats. So for sure, yeah, and all, all that cool. automation would be awesome, right? Yeah, you know, if yeah. you if you uh, find yourself elsewhere and you mm-hmm. dial things back or. Yeah. Heat things up. Yeah. 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 It's good. Good extra insight and control. Do you use and, the ramping functions? Uh, yes. Yes, I yep. do. I mm-hmm. like the ramping functions. I like uh, the gradual climb and, and downward climb. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I'll tell you right now, I used to love this one thermostat. This company doesn't make them anymore. Um, they've been dead for like seven years. But there is a company called EcoZone, and they used to make this controller that was hands down the most complex controller I have ever seen to date. And I remember having to learn on the fly how to program two of them for a guy that I worked for once a week, just taking care of his animals because he had, you know, big dreams and aspirations to really go big. And uh, so he bought like these really nice controllers thinking, you know, in the future, they'd make a huge difference with his breeding. Mm. Um he definitely did not last more than a couple of years, oh. personal issues and things. Um, I see stuff that's none of my business, but I saw too much of anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. That's another story for another time. But these, these thermostats were so well thought out that um, uh, you could program settings to the day. So 365 days a year, you could program what that day was going to be, or you could do it in chunks of every month or every week or a couple months or whatever. Like you had that much control and it, each controller had uh, the capacity and energy to manage um, humidifiers or misting systems, whatever you, you know, choose to use uh, heating elements and uh lighting so it could do all of it in one so you could program ramping dimming multiple times during a day heat light whatever you could literally go online you know map out the entire calendar year of a productive breeding year of like island in indonesia that you know has these chondros for example and then you could program that into your your controller 
so that it literally replicates it to the day as best as the data you have gives you insight into. And it would take some time to do it, but you could do that. That's and, wild. Uh, it was the coolest thing. The problem was, and I guarantee you what sunk it, was that it was it was like a 500 something dollar price point. Mm. It was absurdly expensive and it was really difficult to program. And I don't know if they had enough startup to really launch it, but it never took mm-hmm. off after that. But yeah, that I could see that being a little nuts. niche. <laughs> Dude, it was yeah. high end of high end. If, was if someone badass. was able to put that kind of level of control in, you know, like a Herpstat or something, for example, but with like a really user-friendly interface, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if there could be like an app or a website where you can it would have to be it would have to be computer based that'd be the only way i think anybody would realistically have the time to efficiently do it because i'm sitting there punching little buttons on this this (laughs) console scrolling through menus in a screen this big yeah nope you know what i mean it it took me uh, a good hour and a half to program these two of these things just for basic like day and night settings across the it was just it was very elaborate that's Um, wild yeah it was too much So, yeah, there's almost maybe kind of an upside too to not planning everything out that much so that you actually have to check in every few days or weeks and be more hands on. Right. Because if you planned out a whole year and then just checked out, that could be bad. Problematic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, there's something something to be said for having your finger on the pulse of your collection. You know, Mm -hmm. it's important. So, yeah, I think it was. I think it was a piece of equipment ahead of its time and uh, just too expensive. So (laughs) um, Jack Oliver asks, what is the most often you guys feed at any point during the year? Um, For me, it's usually in the fall. Yep. Yeah. 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 So same for me now, now that I'm adopting more of that feeds or food cycling. Right. So Mm -hmm. I fed the, female brettles especially heavy during the fall Mm -hmm. um because uh three out of the four pairs i had just received the animals from nick in march of last year so Mm -hmm. i had a summer basically to make Mm -hmm. sure they had the right body condition Mm -hmm. um and yeah so i fed not super heavy during the summer and then probably around august september no probably more like september october i really ramped it up to make sure everybody was good um, yeah yeah and then my cutoff was end of october so yep yeah yeah it's pretty much the same i do um yes so i'm just starting to pick back up feeding sparingly right now mm-hmm. and uh like literally right now um <laughs> i've got a lot of road. yeah yeah 62 <laughs> uh food items being thought out right now Holy crap. Yeah, that's not everybody, though. That's just, I think, like, that whole section isn't getting fed. They're not getting fed. Yeah, but otherwise, it's, like, it's a good chunk of them. Um, I got to get a little freezer. I, dude, chest all my freezer rodents, all day. Yeah, all my rodents are still in the main freezer in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, your roommates must hate you. He's cool, thankfully. That's but good. Anyway. <laughs> no, I broke down and went to Sears and got me a good chest freezer with a warranty and everything, so. That's what's next. Life-changing. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Oh, oh yes. Feed cycling. Feeding. Yes. Yeah. So spring, I feed everybody kind of loosey, loosey goosey, but like good size meals, just not weekly. Like I'm getting away from the weekly feeding mm-hmm. almost entirely with the exception of, uh, 
the fast metabolism colubrids and uh and maybe like one or two other trouble animals like if i ever have animals that are just not really on it i'll put more attention to them and mm-hmm. schedule kind of goes out the window it's what's best for that animal for sure yeah well um, yeah. yeah so sometimes you have to make exceptions and, and break away from your own rules but i try to do bigger meals more spread out with the exception of my colubrids right. and um so it's probably every two to four weeks during, you know, like middle of February to April, mm-hmm. April, May. You. Uh oh, I've got a frozen Riley. <laughs> People in the chat, do you also have a frozen Riley? Am I the only one here? Well, if that's the case, somebody let me know. All right. I'm sure he'll be back. This is weird. I've never had to carry the show before. I feel like Owen when Eric went to Australia and left him alone. (laughs) But anyway, I guess for me. uh, Okay, Riley's messaging me here. I'm still live. You appear to have dropped off. Come back. Help me. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Cool. But uh, so talking about feed scheduling. For me, everything goes out the window with the false water. Hey, thank goodness. I was terrified. (laughs) God damn it. Excuse my language. The the internet provider right here is crap. Um, Good. So I was just going to say, for me, everything goes out the window with the falsies, with the false water cobras. I'm yeah. actually kind of following the uh, the loafman method, if you will, and I'm feeding mm. every four days for them. Um, oh, okay. Smaller meals mm-hmm. every four mm-hmm. days because their metabolism is so fast. They're um, also a species that can't open their mouth super right. wide. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, that's that's kind of the same approach I have with my Kribos. When they're younger, I'll feed them as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Now that they're adults, I try not to go further than seven days apart. For sure. Yeah. And it's interesting too. Both of the, the falsies I have, at least so far, seem to let me know when they want to eat or not. Like they will... Uh, tail whip the food and hood up when they're not hungry <laughs> and Ooh. some some weeks or I guess not even weeks some every four day feeding days they just yeah. don't want it right and then when they do it's it's a ferocious false water cobra strike so yeah yeah I can almost trust them a little bit to uh to not gorge which is cool yeah, yeah. do you uh do you feed multiple food items at a time yeah um at the moment it's it's two or three little tiny fuzzies. Uh, but when they get a little bit more size, I'm excited. I can kind of expand that, that uh, my offerings, right. I can get some fish in the mix, some birds in the mix. Uh, they're just a little too small for me to like get button quail or whatever, or like mm-hmm. chop up the fish. Like I'm just going to wait until I can yeah. do that a little more easily. But yeah, I think Owen does some sort of like he, he's got some snakes that only eat live. So he, they only feed when he's able to go to a show and pick some up. And I, I think that's a pretty interesting, rather almost unpredictably natural interval right. as well. I think yeah. that's cool. I bet those animals are super lean and healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If I go too far without feeding my Kribos, I can actually see it in their, um, 
in their their fat stores on their back. Um, they're they're a snake that is very responsive uh, physically, physiologically, uh, showing you how underfed they are and happens quick um they can also get fat quick but Mm -hmm. they don't seem to hold it on very very long if you like break them off a little bit but yeah they uh it's interesting trying not to feed them so much right in that little window for breeding because i don't want them to get so hungry they try and eat each other but i also don't want them to like be constantly in this food mode and had a a learning curve with that this year but they seem to be Mm -hmm. doing just fine um, the male's going to get a nice big meal today. He popped out of his shed last night. So, you know, How that's sweet. the other thing you can tell when an animal cycle is like going in and out. Like when he's super interested in the female, he's just like nonstop, <laughs> doesn't shed or do anything. And then as soon as she's giving signs that she's no longer receptive and doesn't want his advances, he instantly goes into shed. Huh. And I, I can't help but notice that. And, uh, so he's no longer pacing and rubbing his face off at the door, trying to get to the female that's cycling because she's done cycling. That's very um, cool. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to see that sort of behavior in your animals. I, now, think- I wonder too, like you before as a zookeeper, as zookeeper, Riley, you mm-hmm. probably were, well, you definitely had different hours than you do now. Right. Would you say that you're able to watch your animals more now as not zookeeper Riley, or is it about the same? Um, it's probably about the same. Ah. I was really diligent about it during, um, during my years in the zoo because I aspired to mimic everything, like all the standards and, and note taking and observational awareness, uh, while I was there. And now I've taken a little bit more of a, a relaxed approach, but I still have the same amount of time in my, my snake room seasonally. Like I don't spend as much time in the winter cause not much going on. Right. <laughs> Soon as temperatures pick up and babies start hitting the floor, then I'm in here, you know, four or five hours a day, um, after work. And you know, my weekends are spent cleaning waters and spot cleaning and doing all sorts of work for the collection here. So I just, I try to keep a good work ethic. I try not to, um, get lazy and complacent with uh my time in here i know that i've seen a lot of folks kind of burn out or have you know health issues arise from getting lazy with things especially when they have a collection the size it's really easy so for me shoot i used to overdo it i used to like wake Mm -hmm. up a couple hours before work just to go through every enclosure and check on everybody in the morning and then do it after when i came home from work because i was such a stickler for clean enclosures and i did actually see some behavior that kind of made me feel like my animals were being stressed out by being checked on too much Mm -hmm. so i've since curbed that but i found my happy place um as far as how much and i like to just be in here every day just not super invasive um so yeah, I don't know. The the zookeeping years were absolutely beneficial for my my work ethic and my attention to detail uh in my collection. For sure. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, because I know at least for me, now that I've transitioned more towards the school side of things from full time field work, I'm definitely mm-hmm. around more and oh, that's interesting. Been fun to, yeah. to observe more and that's good. Not necessarily get in their business more but mm-hmm. you know they're in my room so <laughs> yeah and you're home more a little bit yeah so i just yeah, get, okay. to, get to see what's going on a little bit more frequently which That's good. i'm enjoying um 
especially with the species like the falsies. There you go. Load it up. More uh, coffee. Third coffee. cup. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, those diurnal species, right? They're, they're so much fun mm-hmm. to watch during the day. Oh, yeah. If you, if you don't have time to like observe them, it's almost a shame. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. I know. I love, I love coming in here during the day and then coming in here at night and seeing a difference, especially yeah. certain times of the year. Um, especially during the summer, dude, coming in here at night during the summer, you don't open anything. because you're, <laughs> you're getting screwed real bad. Like these nice. animals mean business at night in the summer. <laughs> oh dude, it's fun. It's so much fun. I just, I mean, how fortunate are we that we found this lifestyle and we get to observe a little slice of the natural world in our own rooms. And I just, Sorry, that was just like a little side tangent, a little bit of bliss there that hit me. I'm just like, no, I, just, I, I, I love what I have more. in here. And I feel ashamed to refer to them as as individual things, even though they're living beings. But you know, I just love all of this stuff. And it's just, it's too Absolutely. cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've really been feeling similarly, especially when you kind of consider like the story of each of these things, right? Like I, w- yeah. I recorded a video that I need to edit still for like a inland carpet um, mm-hmm. like focus uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I didn't even know, maybe you already knew you probably did that they're endangered in yeah. some parts of yeah. Australia. Yeah. yeah, I didn't even know that. And it's like, when you take that into consideration, you know, the, the struggles that the wild populations are going mm-hmm. through and mm-hmm. obviously the, the story with the roughies where they're probably on their way out just with mm-hmm. natural planetary cycling, you know, it's, yeah. it is literally a miracle. That yeah, they're here. Yeah, <laughs> I had that moment two days ago pulling my big female out. I was like, This is in my house. I have this yeah. animal. This is nuts. I have it's, four of these. What is going on? It's insane. This is amazing. When you stop and think about everything it took for that to be possible, dude. For real, it's wild. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's why that's why I have a hard time only working with carpet pythons because, like, I have that same feeling about Doomerol's boas, about Maclots, about Creebos, yeah. about Rainbow the, the <laughs> those things are like a love hate relationship in like the most intense way. Um, yeah, I <laughs> ooh, sometimes I hate them, sometimes I love them. You got to catch me on the right day with them. Right now they're they're on my good list, but uh, as soon as the warm weather comes around, they'll just be demons again, and their cage will be well, it is filthy, but that's nothing new. <laughs> it's always filthy. There's no such thing as a clean mad hog enclosure. But fair, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. No, I'm with you, man. Yeah, Brandon it's Valentine. I think. To yeah, keep that in mind, right? Yeah, absolutely. Brandon Valentine asks anybody in the chat have any new animals showing up anytime soon? And I know he's asked about the chat, but I think it's worth bringing up here. Ooh, New uh, Guinea well. waters. I'm jealous. New Guinea water pythons. Yeah, that that's what caught my eye. I think that's another species that I want like the, the Queensland ones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think having anything like that is exceptional. I think that'd be really, really cool. Um, yeah. Those those are cool snakes, especially after this. seeing the photos that Eric and Owen shared yeah. with us from the one they they found in Australia. I know it's a little bit different, but yeah, they found holy a couple. Crap. And one of them was giant. <laughs> one of yeah. them was like almost two full erics <laughs> yeah it was massive so yeah. i think it's i think it's cool that um people are looking at all those kind of tertiary species mm-hmm. i would so. love to dip my feet in in liasis stuff definitely with the fuscus specifically mm-hmm. like they're so pretty they have the orange belly and 
they uh yeah they're one of those ones that for me seems like they don't get their their due yeah yeah i agree i i'm, I'm kind of glad that i have at least one of the liasis animals with the maclots here mm-hmm. um i remember seeing travis johnson's years ago for the first time mm. i've never seen savus in person definitely played with plenty of olive pythons and uh it's just very very different um group of of pythons and i think they're yeah. there's something special i think i think it's cool that people are you know taking a, a liking to some of those uh scrubs jack oliver mentioned scrubs that's another thing i want uh, scrubs. love scrubs <laughs> I, I think they're fascinating and that's another species that i i just couldn't get right now uh ethically like personally i wouldn't feel right doing it with how cramped it is in here I sure all these mm. things that are on my list of wants are not happening until i'm in the house period mm. so yeah yeah and with the scrubs too it's interesting like it it seems like that may be and i don't this is kind of out of my wheelhouse so i could be totally off base but let's see what you think do you think that they are one of those species that is kind of often kept larger than they should be Hmm. Um, I think potentially I, I will admittedly say I don't know enough about the variation amongst all of them. I know there is right. some size discrepancies from King Horny all the way to right, for like sure. Helms and, and some of the the smaller Southern ones. I don't know if I'm, that's true. It's probably I could be one completely of those things wrong. that has to be thought of in. But what I will say is uh, I think all of them are a very lean, muscular um arboreally capable animal as well right. as terrestrial there's like a there has to be a term for like semi-arboreal almost seems like they exclusively still you i don't know they're semi-arboreal to me I, all the video i see of them over overseas is them being found in the cuts on the ground or mm-hmm. on hills and so um there you go nauta or small the nauta nauta um nauta. the so i i think as long as you keep them lean um right. you'll do right by them i think there's something to be said for you know making sure females are well conditioned if your goal is to breed but um yeah anything with anything with you know noticeably fat necks when they're supposed to have a big prominent head i think it's i don't know i think we overfeed everything in this hobby yeah. let's be real but sure. um it comes from a, it comes from a good you know place a, a good heart you know what i mean so yeah. And they're yeah, such the, like an understudied species. Like the more we see examples of them in right. the wild, obviously the wild almost swings to the pendulum of like too lean. Although right. there are some animals that are found that like are, you can tell are excellent hunters. So, yeah, it, it seems like there definitely needs to be more knowledge. Right. And, and um, more effort by certain people in the hobby to like actually distinguish the differences like i know at the vivarium it's just scrub python amethystine mm-hmm. python right mm-hmm. like there's no there's no type <laughs> you yeah. know and and uh i was taught to tell people these are going to be huge but then yeah. i talked to nick and he's like no my waminas are probably smaller than some of the brettles and it's yeah like, oh okay well that's yeah. interesting <laughs> yeah i think i think there's a lot of variation in there and i think if you're food cycling doing some seasonal prey availability, you'll probably get a more natural animal. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this was the question I was talking about earlier that I was anticipating coming and, and he, he posed it here as more of recording of, of carpets and jungles and stuff, but then he corrected himself. He was talking about, sorry, super dwarfs retics to carpets. Now 
I think everybody knows that I, I don't like uh, those weird hybrids. Um, I think natural intergrades are a gray area where I tolerate them more. So a, a, a retic breeding a carpet python would never naturally happen in the wild, I don't think. Um, that being said, I do think it is possible because I have heard of much crazier crosses like yeah. Woma carpets. It's um, something with the way snakes' sex chromosomes are that's different yeah. than the way mammal sex chromosomes are. Yeah, uh, that they're actually able to do that, right? Like, yeah, I think I think it is possible for them to breed at least through one generation. Who knows if the offspring would be fertile, right. sterile, whatever? But I think it is possible, and I think you know people bred berms to retics people people bred mm. balls to berms i mean there's all sorts of crazy stuff out there so for I, sure i think yeah. it could be done for sure bad eaters i it's actually think bad eaters are badass looking <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's <laughs> a cool freaking hybrid up yeah, retic I mean, cross it looks like an oversized jag <laughs> you do get really cool looks sometimes right but mm -hmm. at, at the same time it's one of those ones where it's just because you can doesn't mean you should necessarily oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. I fully support that. I really think there's something to be said with responsibility towards the species. Like if it isn't fully established and it isn't, you know, very secure in the hobby, then you probably shouldn't be tinkering with those until those check marks have been hit about establishing the baselines. I think if you're talking about like if super dwarf and dwarf retics were abundant, then knock yourself out. But uh, mm -hmm. I think the reason why it hasn't really been done is because one super dwarfs and dwarfs are, insanely expensive and the people paying money for them are retic people they're not necessarily hybrid people right so i think that's why you're not going to see that um right away i think eventually it'll show up no problem hmm. yeah interesting <laughs> yeah i don't know it's a it's a blasphemous thought um it, to me anyway that's just my opinion but you know we're yeah. we're in in essence we're keeping animals in our and our boxes and our tubs in our place that are never going to go back to the wild. So as long as you represent whatever you're doing accurately, you know, you do, you knock yourself out. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I guess my thing, and that's totally true. Right. But I, I, I would encourage people to stop and ask themselves why <laughs> before they do it. Like, I don't know. I, I guess I feel like even in a captive setting without, the possibility of reintroduction when you're making living, breathing things, you should, you should know why you're doing it. Yeah. You know? And, and maybe for hybrid people, it's because it's going to look cool and all right. Mm -hmm. You know, if that's enough reason for you to, to, to create that animal, as long as you're going to care for it sure. <clears throat> for its life and you know, sure. it's going to live a long time mm -hmm. then sure. But yeah, you know, what's interesting. There's like a whole accepted hybrid market in colubrids with like the corn king right. milk mm -hmm. snake crosses. Like you throw a, a Leonis phase king with, um, with like a, another milk snake and then cross it with corn snakes. And I've seen some of the craziest looking animals come out of that stuff. Some of those and, corn and the, morphs like have rat snake in it inherently, yeah, right? A yeah. creamsicle, I learned recently, a creamsicle is an albino corn bred within an albino rat snake. And it makes this beautiful orange and white, just amazing looking snake. And the community doesn't doesn't shun these hybrids. They mm -hmm. just they just kind of, this is a, they, I don't know if they just put it in like this is its own lane of a project within their collection or their own sub sub project or something mm -hmm. and they just like i have my pure corn snake stuff and then i have my 
Frankenstein, weird yeah. sciencey stuff. The designer stuff, right? Just like with Condros. You know? Right. And I think I think the reason we see it so widespread, extensive, long term and accepted in colubrids is because they've been around in the hobby for decades, decades, mm-hmm. decades longer than certain python species. And so I think they're just further along their trajectory as far as how long people have been keeping them. Have any new morphs come about recently? I think, you know, other than the palmetto, there haven't been any new morphs in that stuff. So right. I think it's just, you know, a natural progression. Eventually people realize there's nothing else, no new frontiers to conquer. So hybridize sure. some stuff and just have some fun with it. It may also feel different and feel more blasphemous because it is these, uh, these species from like Australia where we can't get more, right? Mm-hmm, like if you mm-hmm. muddy the waters too much, you, there's no, there's no filtering yeah. it back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's something to be said for the level of responsibility that needs to be applied species specifically based on whether or not the gene pool is finite or mm. uh, if there's, you know, influx of new blood periodically, if, if there's something that is regularly coming in and it's not a closed population like everything australian is essentially um then yeah you have to be a little bit more particular with what you choose to do with those animals because you can't uncross things you can't purify something that's been muddied up you can't you can't bring back a line or a group once it's it's gone in its pure form if the borders are closed and that's just it yeah exactly so exactly Agreed. <laughs> but I mean, that being said, there are plenty of, you know, worthwhile pro, uh, projects that are crosses. The only one in my collection is the Citrus Tiger Albino project. And um, that that project has, you know, the Citrus Tiger project in itself, not even with the Albino, has some question marks and some debated history. So, you know, crossing that out isn't a detriment to some pure locality or something because that's just and not what it is. Walk me through that really quick. So obviously the albinos from the Darwin, right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and so uh, what else is in there? Nothing. Citrus tiger is its own line of, okay. uh, of a coastal, coastal that was pretty, it was this whole project. Wilbird started um, that produced these tiger coastal looking animals that had insanely nice yellow color on the side, some grays and just brighter overall uh, tone. And he selectively bred it a couple times and then sold the project almost entirely to Eric and then lost some of his animals along the way. And now Eric has that project and he's just continued it on. Got it. So it's basically um, a line of selectively bred coastals that are tigers with nice colors that you know the history of them is just ver verbatim based on what was passed on from their origins but no like actual gotcha true documented from these animals that have extensive documented lineage sort of thing so um to me when there's a question mark it completely takes away the severity of of crossing it with something else because it's not a pure thing really right. you preserved. don't know anyway yeah <laughs> unless you're talking about the line peering preserving the line preserving a line has value mm-hmm. um you know that's that's different but it's not like the citrus tiger stuff is in any danger of uh going away it's got a couple generations in it so um gotcha yeah so and i eric's got stuff that is crossed with 
albinos and other things and stuff that is strictly citrus tiger or coastal in, injected, nothing else. Right. And, and I've got a, a caramel citrus tiger that is just coastal in her, no other, nothing. And then I've got a couple hats that obviously have Darwin in them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's when you find that line where like, Oh, it's okay for Morelia spilota mm-hmm. species to mm-hmm. cross, but don't you yeah. dare make an albino brittles. <laughs> well, that's that's so a that's, hybrid. Again, that is a hybrid. And that yep. is where I personally draw the line, but there are plenty yep. of folks out there making brittles jags because let's be real. The, the folks like Joe ball and over in Australia who made those insanely bright orange, uh, albino brittles, they're, they're stunning. They're absolutely gorgeous. You can't deny that. I personally won't make them, but I have no problem with people doing that because mm-hmm. Coastals, Darwin's, and Bradley, as far as the, the the hobby sector, aren't in any danger of disappearing. So mm-hmm. having those particular projects, you know, technically muddying, but not really muddying because right. it has such a negative connotation. Um, it, it's I don't think it's harmful at all. And it's a beautiful animal and it's a project that people will actually like the offspring from even in its het form because it's got project potential. So I don't see any problem with that. And uh, it's a beautiful snake. So sure. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I too would draw a line there. I would also draw the line around inlands. Um, it, it's just interesting. They <laughs> are still technically Spilota, right? Um, oh, it's funny perfect. you bring that there up. You go. <laughs> well, so I'll but, tell you right now without naming names, there already are inland crosses. I've seen inland jag. I, I saw an inland jag seven years ago for the first time. So it's been done. It's been done. Gotcha. Yeah. I think for me, part of the reason, aside from obviously with brettles, it's just, it's clear, right? They're, they're their own species. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to make that kind of hybrid. But for the inlands, they, are, are they still Spilota? They're still Spilota. We'll that see what they so publish wrong in the to me. I think that's exactly. going to change. I because think that's, they're you, so isolated. Yeah, they're isolated. And when you think of their reproductive strategy, right? Like all of the uh, Spilota stuff are winter breeders. Mm-hmm. And then you have Brettles and Inlands that are the spring mm-hmm. breeders, right? Mm-hmm. So it just seems like a clear sign to me that those things shouldn't breed when they breed at different times of the year and they wouldn't be compatible anyway. Right. So yeah, I don't know. That's just, yeah. Me. Yeah. They no. seem like more of their own thing, even though yeah. they're still Pelota. I agree. And I don't know. I don't know anybody who would want to cross the in inland with anything else other than the individual who did it just because <laughs> he had so many, it was just like another thing to do. And it, he had so many of this and this and everything else that it like, it's just another project Avenue to see what happens right. sort of thing. So there's, there's merit in exploring those, you know, un, yeah. unaccomplished frontiers, but I don't know I what project potential there is there. What I did mean, that I've look seen like, it, by the way, Inland Jack? <laughs> uh, it, it actually added a, a cleanliness and some, uh, a cool head stamp and a little bit of silver tones in what pattern was there. So it, it looked clean for a, it was a nice looking Jag. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> I, and I don't even keep Jags. Right. I've seen albino inlands done. So that obviously has Darwin cross in them. And again, that looks pretty cool because of the dark, um, the dark, you know, base for the inland pro- produces a, a nice contrast albino. Hmm. And, and the folks in Australia, they're much further ahead in a lot of the projects that the United States has. Um, and they have stuff we don't have and we have stuff they don't have. And 
and I, you know, they, they seem to be much more accepting and exploring some of those uh, mm-hmm. boundaries and crossing those lines. And again, I'm sure there's people over there that are, are purists as well. So to me, yeah. it's just the exploration of the human curiosity and with our animals, you know, so for sure. Yeah. The mad scientist side of things. Exactly. For me, I would just want to try to selectively breed for like more blue or more red with the inland stuff. That seems like more of a, a worthwhile endeavor mm-hmm. in my mind anyway. What's the, uh, the founding population size for the United States? Uh, for inlands? Yeah. Do you know that That's by a great chance? Question. Like how many on, founders? I don't know for sure. I think on Nick's website, it said that let me pull that up one sec. I feel like there was a handful of pairs that came in through Europe and that's where it yeah. started with like yeah. probably Paul Harris. Right. Just a guess. I, I believe that is probably true. I was looking at this yesterday, which is why it's only halfway in my mind. <laughs> so yeah, on on uh, Nick's website here for Inlands, it says do, 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 in 2008... He was fortunate enough, blah, 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 to import 2.2 from Mm, So two pairs. And then it says the following year, he was able to obtain 1.1 from an unrelated bloodline. So three pairs, two bloodlines. But that's just Nick. Yeah. And then there's other people. I don't know. (laughs) I don't either. We would have to dig a little bit deeper, but uh, you can safely assume somebody else has been able to bring them in. So Mm -hmm. there's probably a handful of pairs and in the founding lines and it might be uh, think, less than, than i think 10, justin <laughs> i think justin might even have imported some that are unrelated right um so there's okay yeah so there's definitely multiple founding pairs and several a handful of lines not super deep but right um, better than say ruffies that all come from the three animals yeah, yeah yeah looks like williams in here he's saying he believes that there's just two lines um just half right. unrelated Justin has. Okay. So yeah, so it's a, it's a rather finite um, gene pool, mm-hmm. uh, not terribly uh, wide and diverse, but you know, we've seen less, uh, mm-hmm. especially with roughies. And so I think, you know, even if it stays Morelius below to just for the sake of the limited gene pool, there's some merit to never crossing those. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and just with this train of thought too, it's interesting. I believe that all of the Lazic brettles are clutch mates. Like mm-hmm. every Lazic line brettle came from one clutch. Oh. Um, and obviously with that, we also have a fours and hypo, which mm-hmm. are their own thing, mm-hmm. but just interesting to keep in mind. It's, it's yeah. interesting that some species seem to develop uh, the signs of, inbreeding depression in less generations than others, right? Like we mm-hmm. don't see that at all really with the brittle stuff, but mm-hmm. it, that same amount of inbreeding generations in a different species, we might be seeing more problems. So my, my understanding or my belief and hypothesis on that is that Bradley have been isolated for so exactly. long. They're so yeah. separate. There has to be some sort of genetic variation among species as to the strength towards inbreeding depression. Yeah. And we see that a lot in boas. Vin Russo has done a lot of research on some of the island and insular species of boas and yes. how 
you know, even some island species of boas will have partho litters of all males just to ensure that there are males on the island for her to breed years down the line. Yeah. And that, you know, that's direct cloning and somehow these species are still alive and doing well on these islands. So I think exactly. certain species... And you species... can think of that as an island, that little bean exactly. in the middle of Australia. Exactly. They can't leave, so it might as well be. <laughs> so I think species that that evolve and become isolated and survive probably adapt or maybe the survivors are the ones that have the strength, uh, the genetic strength against inbreeding depression. Maybe there were others that just didn't make it um, mm-hmm. or just couldn't hack it in that environment. And so they, you know, their presence is not there, but it's elsewhere. Right. And that's so, exactly my point is that it is species specific, mm-hmm. how inbreeding depression will manifest mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. based on, what their their strategies are like in the wild you know what what are they working with in terms of range and how right. likely are they to encounter relatives naturally you know etc cetera, mm-hmm. etc cetera. so mm-hmm. just an interesting thought yeah i mean there's definitely merit to it i think we see it a lot in nature and mm-hmm. uh it, it's interesting because even bearded dragons for example they come from the same area centralian pythons are found or at least the centralian bearded dragon Mm -hmm. and uh they have been in the hobby for so long and reproduce so quickly and have been able to been bred for so long that they've they've gotten like 30 generations into to these dragons and and they've gotten so far down the line that they've had to for in some cases inject um a different species in there like this uh so Bearded dragons are Pagona viticeps and certain lines. And at certain points of time, they've injected Pagona barbata blood in some mm-hmm. to help just bring in different um, diverse genetics to help keep them around because they're breeding so much that you, you will get um, inbreeding depression, but like 30 generations, if that is accurate is pretty deep. Yeah, for sure. That's ridiculously deep. And right. I feel like I've read certain, research papers for snakes that on some species you don't see any deleterious effects until after the fifth generation sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. It's a very interesting train of thought. How many generations does it take species to species and comparing that, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's just another piece that uh, not everything's the same. Right. And right. That's and then a common theme here. <laughs> and it seems to, you know, maybe that's why you see a lot of train wreck clutches in zebra, uh, zebra jungle projects, super zebras and things. Um, I don't know. I've heard Nick mention zebra, super zebra clutches being train wrecks quite frequently. And I experienced it in my one. So, you know, maybe there's something to that as well, because that morph was, you know, coming in. So of course everybody's breeding it back. So there's a lot of inbreeding in there and, and, you know, you outcross and you get fewer tail kinked animals and things like that. So it shows some increasing in strength with outcrossing. And maybe there's uh, something to be said for better clutches with more outcrossing too. So I think it's all kind of in that same vein. For sure. Yeah. So, yeah. I wonder if Eric's going to make it on. Where that boy? Have you heard from him at all? No. No. He didn't even look at our messages. I'll tag him right now but um so how many pairs of uh of brettles are you putting together this season four holy hell yeah <laughs> four uh two of which are proven 
breeders that are large. And then the other two uh, should be good to go, but we'll see. They have not gone before and mm-hmm. they are smaller than the proven ones. So, okay. A year younger for those two. Yeah. So you'll likely get two clutches at the very least. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be stoked with two. I'd be extra stoked with three. I'd be terrified with four. And I'll take one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially if they're like 20 plus egg clutches. That's a right. lot. Yeah. I could see it from two of them. I, I think that the hypo het stripes could easily drop clutches that big. Um, oh, yeah. I think the double het stuff probably is, you know, a little smaller, probably more okay. like 10, 15 eggs if everything goes well. But we shall see. yeah that's gonna be a good season man yeah i'm excited it would be great if i could be successful with three of the four because then i could do two mi and one artificial um, Mm. Mm. for the sake of the studying that i'm doing but i know you are focusing on mi stuff but are you hoping to also have artificial as a somewhat baseline yeah so the study is comparing the two um so Ideally, I would have almost equal population sizes in each of those two treatments. Okay. Um, and Nick is, I think, he sent me what he was doing. He's also doing multiple pairs of brettles, but he mm-hmm. may do artificial for all of his because, right, his livelihood's depending on it. Sure. You know? Sure. Um, so if. But if, you'll be able to use that data to compare. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. We're, and then there's a couple pairs on campus at West Liberty as well mm-hmm. um, that hopefully will go. They they had to pull a male. Uh, I think the male got an, a respiratory, but they still have mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. male that should be ready to go. But yeah, this is kind of the trial year. And then right. we'll tweak and refine and hit it again next season yeah Um, we'll have to touch base off air about uh what you need for me any particulars in format of data collection equipment things like that because if i am fortunate enough to have my my bradley produce this year um i would love to contribute to that that study whether it be artificial or mi if she if i am actually getting them cold enough which it by the looks of how (laughs) the little thermometer i use uh gives me feedback i might be getting to like 60 so i might get lucky um but i'm definitely not getting into the 50s i don't think uh at least i can't verify it so if that happens i'd love to help out absolutely yeah that'd be great and and again like if not this season next season i'm definitely going to be trying to pull in a lot more uh folks and more data because by then we'll have all the kinks ironed out and Mm -hmm. uh, more of like an actual protocol yeah, like a standardized hand. format. Here's exactly. the paper. Here's the here's the yeah, parameters. Here's when to change do temperatures. This. Do this. Yeah, yeah, that'd for be sure. good. For sure. Yeah, for anybody who doesn't uh, doesn't know what we're talking about, Lucas is involved in some pretty uh, interesting experimentation, uh, studying artificial and maternal incubation in Centralian pythons, and just observing all the variations and the, the results and and yeah. how all that factors into vitality of the success and mm-hmm. and fitness of the babies right right, right. Yeah. and then i i did my own little jungle one in 2019 and uh i know it won't won't be relevant to your study but for any of the other um any of the other animals if they give me good clutches and they beehive them nicely and i feel confident with them uh, i think i will let them do some mi as well 
uh, you know, we'll see. I would, I, I had such a great time doing it that first time that I think, I think I need to try and do it every year because at the very least, it just keeps me in tune with my animals, keeps my finger on the pulse. You know, it's just For interesting. Sure. It's a, and there's nothing cooler than seeing babies hatching out under mom's coils. It's I can't wait. Yeah. Hands down the coolest, like national geographic level like experience. It's, it's just, yeah. Again, that nature in your box in your home. Exactly. Feeling. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Brandon Valentine asks, what are you thinking about numbers for your holdbacks? I haven't thought about it. <laughs> well, so first of all, some of those, those animals, are they all yours outright? Or are they on no. loan for Nick? Um, so two of the pairs are, are mine. Um, and then two of the pairs are on that kind of indefinite loan agreement mm-hmm. where for the first two clutches, uh, half goes over to Nick. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a good question. I, I think I really need to wait and see what actually pops out mm-hmm. before thinking about mm-hmm holdbacks um well assuming assuming um the ones that have any of those mutations involved right you get your visuals and all the combination variation in there and then yeah. you're i yeah. have the chance to hit the double visual stonewash stripes which would be you know notable um i think nick and casey are yeah those are sweet if I, i'll i'll make a promise with you right now if i get good Kribo eggs you trade for and, us <laughs> and you get a visual double uh stonewall stripe i will just send you a Kribo. <laughs> hey sounds good to me cool. <laughs> i would love a Kribo. yeah um and then also uh hypo stripes are are likely right the odds on that i think are are more likely than the double Damn. visual Nice, dude. I, I think the stonewash stripe double visual is like a one in 16 shot, right? Okay, okay. If we're talking about, yeah, recessions, which I need to, yeah, learn your, your Punnett better. squares, yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, dude, I, I remember at one point when I found out what a Punnett square was, <laughs> I, I went through so every year, what I would do is I would put, um, this was back when I was like doing ball pythons and carpets and a few other things. I would do Punnett squares for every single pair that was going oh, wow. or attempted that year just to like, just for fun, just to see what I would, you know, was coming up with. And it, and I just have a much better understanding as a result of, of how they work, but it's so right. cool to see all that like fleshed out. I think that's totally. why people really love, you know, morph combos and things like that because you can really geek out on all that stuff. So. Absolutely. Yeah. But and- if it, if it were me and I was in your shoes with those <laughs> pairings, I would keep one pair from each pairing hmm. um, at the very least. And that all depends on the future goals. Uh, not so much the space because you'll always find a way to make space as a red cow keeper. <laughs> <laughs> it's just more about the future longevity um, and just getting that next generation. And there's also some aesthetic or not aesthetic, but um, uh what's it called? Just intrinsic value in keeping something that you produced. Just, yeah. You know? Oh, I, I absolutely will. I, it's just a question of what and how many. Right. And yeah. So I'm also interested to see for the double het pairs that I'm putting together. One of those pairs is super high contrast, like mm-hmm. light colored. They were Nick's holdbacks. Right. Mm-hmm. And those are, really nice and then the other double head pair is kind of 
still nice, but less nice, you know, like a little darker. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious to see how that manifests in the morphs themselves. Right. Like it, cause they're phenotypically normal, but are the, the lighter colored, higher contrast parents going to have nicer looking stonewash than the other ones? Or does that morph just kind of say, whatever, I'm a stonewash, you know, and override that, you know? I think there's a lot of variation in stonewash. I've mm -hmm. seen quite a bit of variation within one, one litter, one clutch, you know, yeah. high expression, low expression. Same with, uh, with stripe. There's a little bit of variation mm -hmm. in the striping stuff too. Yeah. So it'll be really weird to see. Also, brettles take a little while for you to really see mm -hmm. whether they're going to be nice or not, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they all I think, kind of come out brown. and. Yeah, I think all yeah. carpet pythons give you a little bit of a patient sort of push in terms of how they look. Because you can look at them and you can instantly see who's got the lighter tones or whatever as a mm -hmm. baby. But they change in sometimes exactly. directions you can't predict. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I would love to work on the hypo stripe stuff. Um, you know, keeping back the hypo E ish ones, if you will, the, the lightest yeah. ones and, yeah. and working to, to make that more and more hypo toned because those are going to just be 50%. Right. So some selective right. breeding to remove that, uh, that, that little, little bit of melanin. Bit. Yeah, yeah, that that would be pretty cool to make them look more like they were full blood hypos. Right. That'll probably take a few generations, but sure. from what Nick's posted, those those hypo stripes are really cool cuz that stripe gene on its own tends to darken up the animal, right? But big time. Even just the 50% hypo, they're they're pretty screaming. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, that's the one thing people don't realize is although brettles are kind of born reddish gray, they do change color a bit and those stripes they bring a lot of that pattern in and squish it up top. Mm -hmm. And, and for some reason it's just dark, just really, really dark. Um, occasionally you find some with some decent lighter red tones, but yeah, I, I think that's where like injecting a fours line would help mm -hmm. injecting hypo would help stonewash already kind of just by virtue of what it does to the negative space makes it lighter. Mm -hmm. So adding stuff in will help, but yeah, line breeding is, it's just like tiger. You get better stripes, right. the more tiger you throw back in coastals is polygenic. Yeah, um, for sure. So I think that, that, it, that would probably, eh, English, that would probably <laughs> be the, uh, the project resulting from these clutches. I want to pursue the most. Um, like I yeah. love the stonewash <laughs> stuff and getting the double visual will be super cool. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think stonewash just looks really good as it is just as a morph, right? Like I don't yeah. know how much I can mess with that besides just making more cool stonewashed. <laughs> well, yeah, there's but, only one way to find out, but that is true. Yeah. yeah. So in other words, I definitely need more cages and more space. <laughs> <laughs> the never ending struggle, especially if we also get blackheads and oh yeah, some of those get over here. Cause yeah. I can't imagine letting those go. <laughs> no. So assuming that one female that's ovulated uh, throws like eight eggs, that's four babies you'll be getting. Whew. And then if the other one goes, you know, potentially another three or four more. So right. if all goes well, we'll be, we'll be sending you home with uh, six to eight babies. That is insane. <laughs> We'll find out. I mean, Grant and I have just been prepping our, our various incubators. Um, he built another one. He found another really nice wine fridge on the road. And oh, sweet. 
So, dude, he's he's got all the tools at his tractor shop. So he's made like these nice heat panels where he's taking a heat pad, put it behind, and then custom cut a piece of sheet metal to nice. to cover it, allow some airflow, but also hold some heat, and then line them with LEDs and like oh, make it look sweet. nice. And so he's been getting all those incubators prepped because we will have monitor eggs by the first or second week of March from our black dragon. Hopefully around that time we'll get blackhead eggs. And then he's got a bunch of ball pythons going. We're waiting on a Woma clutch, our ring Python slugged out. Oh, okay. For sure. Yeah. Um, So yeah, yeah, they're, they're tricky, man. They're really tricky. And our second female, um, we didn't even try to breed because she's had this weird issue where she's like paralyzed from like the back right. third down. And I remember seeing that one. Dude, yeah. it's so weird because she's so mean. And I can tell <laughs> when she knows I'm touching You'd be her. You'd mean because... too if you couldn't move your legs. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I'd be a grouchy old bastard. But um, <laughs> uh, like it's funny if she has a bad shed in the, the part of her body that seems paralyzed. If I'm picking up the shed, she doesn't react. But as soon as I cross a line, then she's like, don't touch me. That is so, so weird. <laughs> it's very obvious that she is partially, if not fully paralyzed in like her back third, which is, we have no idea how that happened. No right. idea why. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So it's mm. too bad. That would have been a second female to try for. So we'll see what happens. Still I don't some know. Really cool clutches though. Uh, that Woma that, that we're talking mm-hmm. about over there is so nice. Yeah. She's done. She's refusing food. She's, we're just waiting for her to go into a post-op shed and, and then it'll be egg time for her. Cause she's massive. Like she's been refusing food for the last month, which is unheard of for her. Nice. And then Man, the other females. Aspidites bug so bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's shoot. I haven't ever had Aspidites in my personal collection, but I've worked with them over the years and I'm excited because uh, I will definitely be, bringing home a pair of those from our clutches this year for sure that's gonna be awesome and i think i think i want to i think i want to break lots of rules with them i think i want to put them on sand (laughs) yeah yeah go for it i mean we've seen the video of the woma Mm -hmm. digging with its head in the sand multiple videos from two different people and in that study that that i talk about all the time the woma arboreal study uh dude eating a freaking lizard off the ground yeah they hunt sleeping bearded dragons in trees the eastern locality it's insane but even in that same study those 12 radio tracked animals like they were also found excavating burrows and Mm -hmm. even following uh oh i forget what what type it is but one of those monitors out there they were following the monitors into the burrows and eating them monitor Yeah, yeah. That, that might be one that. of the the yeah. flabby rufus or the goldie eye. Um, oh, I think I think the latter. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. So but it's wild. Um, so speaking of of snakes eating non rodent prey, um, mm. most people know that there are snakes out there that do eat uh, non rodent mammalian prey, other than birds. So they'll eat lizards. They'll eat other snakes. And to me, I think that learning about certain species. Um, that eat those, I think is something that we should try and offer into their diet. Um, you know, we all, we often see animals becoming obese from these fat butterball rats and things. And, and it's not necessarily natural or healthy to a degree. Um, with my Kribos, I like to give them any, uh, oh, she's hearing me talking about her. She's staring right at me. Oh, nice. Um, and I think it's healthy and enriching for them to get, different types of protein other than rodents. So anytime I have stillborn or deceased uh, baby snakes that I produce, right. they don't go to waste. The Kribos get them or the Apodora. Um, and uh, 
so I think that's something that we as keepers could definitely incorporate a little bit more of as well as food cycling, you know, add some variation of what your food is. And, you know, it's not always available and it's kind of a morbid subject, Mm -hmm. um, especially because we love these animals so much feeding off snakes when we're snake lovers is kind of sometimes difficult, um, to even talk about for some people. And I completely understand. And, uh, and it is kind of morbid. I will admit that, but I've got a friend who I'm going to, you know, keep nameless just because I know some people won't like, um, you know, they'll get angry or what, I don't know. I just want to protect his identity, but he's, you know, managed to keep any deceased or misformed, uh, ball Python hatchlings or anything like that. Or, and he's even going to bring me, a uh, an Australian water dragon hatchling that passed away that he's kept in his freezer. So, you know, I am going to try and keep that a part of, of their diet. And, uh, I would love to, for sure. I'm going to save that Australian water dragon hatchling for either my Apodora or whenever I get a Woma. I think that's enough. awesome. I mean, look, if, if, if things are going to die, which they are, they do. Why, why exactly? Why let that go to waste? Especially when it's a natural prey, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if I bred beardies or if I knew somebody that bred beardies, I'd be asking them to save every beardie they ever had that dies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or the same for, skinks you know etc etc because it's just a it just makes sense and it's just a tool Mm -hmm. uh in in the arsenal of an australian reptile keeper right these things that's what they eat Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's a reason they don't want your rodent fresh out of the egg (laughs) well and and if i may anthropomorphize a little bit here and compare you know human data we eat or we have items where we promote the the benefits of things like fish oil so different meats have different oils and different proteins. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's the same across whatever prey item. There's different fat and calcium ratios. There's different protein content. There's a lot of different variations within that. And uh, I think it's just, you know, if it's a natural part of their diet, it's a healthy thing to offer them. And, uh, and it's definitely good for them. I mean, my Kribos, yep. if, if they're dehydrated, you see it in their scales. When I give them you know, a lot of tilapia or, um, quail or things like that, their scales look much healthier. Like yeah. it's undeniable. So absolutely, it's a different it, nutrient mix that yeah. you're giving them. And, and, it, and it's hard to source, um, weird prey items like that sometimes, or depending where you live, mm-hmm. you know, and the major, uh, manufacturers or companies, uh, of these food items, whether it be reptilinks or actual live prey, whole prey, they don't always have access affordably to make it worth their time or your dollar to get things like diverse prey items, like other lizards or sure. snakes for the, you know, there is nobody breeding feeder snakes. There isn't a company that does that. And that mm-hmm. it's pretty understandable why there's a lot of, a lot of work that goes into breeding snakes and absolutely you, you make more money selling them alive than dead and, and the cot anyway. So yeah. it's just interesting. Um, yeah. Brandon Valentine asked, do you think birds are a lot better to feed the snake eaters than rats? I don't, I, I, I don't know if I can argue if it's better. I think it's important. I think it's healthier to a degree, but I, I don't want to say if you can't get snakes, only feed your snake eaters birds. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think anything in moderation, um, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. If you yeah. don't have access to those feeders and you don't have access to them, right. I just think it's. If you do have access to them, though, I think that it's undeniably beneficial to add it to the mix in a significant sure. way. You know, sure. I, I I feed 
the adult blackhead almost exclusively quail with yeah. just a few mice every now yeah. and again to mix in those nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you can see, he's stayed lean and ready to breathe. And Dude, looking he's good, solid. You know? <laughs> he's solid. And and I've tossed him a couple big rats over the last month or so. Is he like, what's that? I've never given Although him he, one. <laughs> he has no hesitation, dude. He's like the most ravenous. He's better than those two females at eating as far as like his reaction time. He just for goes sure. for it because he is so actively breeding. I'll feed him. He'll put that fat back on. He'll look yeah. really good. And then two weeks later, he's looking lean again because he is just yeah. nonstop. <laughs> and so Grant and I have been keeping a close eye on him because we obviously want to return him in good condition and we don't sure. want him to breed himself to death. But um, yeah. we, have, we have to make sure he's fed. I have to separate him for a few days at mm-hmm. a time because he literally doesn't stop. I mean, that's awesome. And and it totally makes sense, right? It, it's, there's more production of of mm-hmm. those reproductive juices and yeah. he's an active guy right now. So he might need oh, yeah. a little more. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that's, that's also something to be mindful of. And I, you know, in that vein to, to kind of close up the feeder snake part of it, I am, I'm constantly torn because right now I've got a, a normal ball Python that I I'm breeding and, and she's definitely going to produce babies. And, you know, the intent was to make feeder snake babies and I will either have to euthanize them or feed them live, which both will be difficult because I appreciate the life that I'm producing in these snakes and these animals. But at the same time, the the overriding need for my existing colony of snakes, particularly the Kribos, to have good, healthy food, it's very important to me that they have snake um, prey items. But then <laughs> working in the shop, it's like I know how much those normal ball pythons go for right now. Because everybody with COVID is buying everything up. Normal ball pythons are going for a hundred bucks. So, you know, there's also value in making money to support the collection with other food. But so, I don't know. It's a weird controversial thing. I don't really talk uh, about a lot because everybody, Mm -hmm. inevitably when I bring it up or write something about it, somebody's like, how dare you? How could you? You're a monster. And I just get all this hate for it. I'm like, I mean, doing what I do. You're just doing what they do trying to snakes eat snakes and the thing is i'm barely tipping the scales you know like 10 percent of their diet at best is reptile prey whereas i've seen studies uh done on wild eastern indigo snakes where it found that more than 50 percent of their dietary makeup observed to be other snakes yeah 50 percent absolutely i think that it's just hard and i've asked people in in the past to be like hey if you have any stillborns or anything send them to me please I think that being upset about a snake eating another snake is kind of just as loony yeah. as being upset. Lost at tossing oh, a... oh, I was just saying, I think being upset about a snake that eats snakes being fed a snake is just as loony as being upset of like a lion being tossed a, a cow leg or something like it's, it's just, it's, it's the natural way of things. And as long as you're doing it in a way that's not cruel or exploitive, to or mm, cruel to whichever snakes mm-hmm. you're going to be feeding right like if we're talking about stillborns and things that just passed on their own anyway like mm-hmm. that's better than just chucking it in the garbage you know well sure waste not want not you know there's definitely yeah. value in that it's interesting because there's different perspectives in different areas like um a few years ago when i was still in in zoos uh there was this big controversy in the zoo world because Zoos try to breed animals for good intentions and, and furthering the gene pool and using diversity and to 
so for example, they breed giraffes in order to preserve the species because they're endangered. So every animal produced and born is important to the population. Right. Species but the survival pop- plans mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah. But there's different populations according to different continents, even though the species are managed as a whole. Um, there are different approaches. And when it comes to enrichment, one of the things that is different in the United States versus Europe is a lot of European zoos find that it's a crucial part of an animal's life experience and enriching behavior to reproduce, whether they're not, whether they are valuable to the population or not, whether the breeding is a valued pair or not, they still a lot of facilities still believe that it's important to these females to go through that cycle. They don't want to put animals on birth control all the time. They really, you know, try to take it that step further. And where it causes controversy is oftentimes they will produce a, you know, for example, the, the story in particular, there was a a giraffe born uh, that was not a, a recommended breeding at all for the population. Those genes were very overrepresented and what they did was they produced a healthy giraffe calf and then let their lions hunt it. Mm. And people lost it. People wouldn't like that. People lost it in the United yeah. States. It was like scathing criticism and yeah. horrid name calling. But in Europe, they're just like, what? This I think is what they do. I personally am very okay with that. But like, of course, the public that doesn't pay much attention, or maybe it's not their primary lens of thinking to think of natural history and enrichment mm-hmm. and things like that they're just like oh my god you just killed the poor little cute giraffe but it, yeah it's like okay go to africa <laughs> yeah nature is brutal um yeah. and and i get it even in even in that zoo where i worked at the time there were people who disagreed with that mm-hmm. approach because sure. they you know they have a fondness for those animals and i see that side of the argument too mm-hmm. um but i'm with you i had no problem with it i was like oh wow that's pretty cool. Yeah. Then that's all the thought I gave it because I heard the whole, I heard the whole explanation. I was very familiar with what behavioral enrichment and all the, the zoological stuff that the public doesn't see. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm well-versed in all of that. So when that happened, I was like, well, that's fantastic. Cause those lions got to do some really natural hunting, dealing with carcasses, like in, in zoos that don't do live feeding, carcass feeding is sometimes controversial, but there are butchers that will get clean USDA, FDA, whatever approved, like sheep or goats or whatever. And I've participated in hanging sheep carcasses up for our, our lionesses to go get after. And, nice. and it's amazing to watch them like carry a carcass around. And then yeah. you have the hierarchical display of like who gets first and some chasing and some stealing behaviors that's and like super one cool. of the females hiding, waiting to like steal some food because it wasn't her turn. And it, it, it kept them occupied in the most natural behavior way for like days. It was yeah. unbelievable. And if you present the the ideas behind it and the in the research and the science behind why we're doing something that seems a little gruesome to people, a lot of people are very appreciative when you're honest about that. But you'll never get a hundred percent acceptance because mm-hmm. that's just human nature. People think differently. Yeah. So um for sure yeah public portrayal of that uh can really set off some bombs some some people get really upset so yeah no that that all makes sense absolutely i i got to see a a jaguar take down a pig at the oakland zoo or a hanging pig carcass once cool yeah yeah up to the tree that was one of the coolest things i've ever seen yeah (laughs) it's like oh Holy crap. <laughs> in Santa Barbara, our cat team set up a, a zip line with a big bungee and they hung a, cor- a carcass of some sort of goat or cow or something. 
or maybe it was a pig and let the armor leopards just figure it out for a couple of days. It was, it was a spectacle. People came out for it. It was yeah. really impressive to see. Yeah. Um, I think when it's a known food item for, for animals and it's not something that's also kept in the zoo, you don't have any issues. Right. But I think when it's an animal that's also known for being in zoos, then you ruffle some feathers. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But there's there's logic behind it. I mean, they're not just doing it willy nilly without a second thought. So, but it's right. good for the animals. I mean, I've seen Komodos grab wild squirrels running into the LA Zoo exhibit that weren't supposed to be there, <laughs> and that animal had a blast. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and there's ways to do it. I've seen that Saint Aug- Saint Augustine alligator farm in one of their vulture exhibits. They made a fake zebra carcass with exposed rib cage and stuff, and it looked like it had just been killed. And they throw you know, diet, controlled diet in there, the meat and things or, mm-hmm. or rodents or whatever it is they're feeding them. And it looks like the animals are tearing out a carcass as they would in the wild. So there is some value to the experience, but it's, there's just a lot more that we, we can think about and do to keep our animals a, just a little bit more stimulated. And I think um, yeah. getting rid of the taboos of like feeding non predictable prey and natural things like bird and fish and other reptiles, I think it's beneficial for sure. Hundred percent, Riley. Yes. Can you fly solo for like thirty seconds? Yes. I'm so sorry. Coffee calls. Ah, yes. Nature calls. Speaking of nature, um, let's see. And all I'm thinking about is the Jurassic Park scene with the Velociraptor. Yeah, I mean monitors are the closest thing to giving you that exact sensation. And watching a monitor do something natural with uh, a big piece of meat or some carcass is is also something that is really enriching and really cool to see. And there's merit to how you deliver food and, and muscles. They work out for getting to rip like a big carcass, like big alligators and crocs, having them get to tear stuff apart, works their, their neck muscles really well. Um, even with herbivorous animals like uh, Aldabra tortoises, Galapagos, sulcatas, you know, we have a habit of just feeding them down on the ground. But these animals also will pick out low hanging fruits and trees that have, you know, grown up and they're, you know, having them reach their head up for like maybe a, a ball that's hanging with a bunch of food shoved in it is not only enriching for them, but it's beneficial for their neck muscles to practice going up like that. Um, you know, the exercise they get instead of putting them on flat terrain, give it some texture, make them work. And so I think with snakes, it's really difficult to get that feedback physiologically because they're so linear and sometimes not expressive. Uh, and we just have to kind of get creative with the textures we give them, the sense we give them, swapping out bedding, you know, doing all these different things that stimulate either their um, olfactory senses or their tactile senses, things like that. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to think of sometimes at first, but it doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, Alex Oliver asked, do you keep any tiger rat snakes? No, but I find those snakes to be really, really cool and fascinating. Everybody that I see that shares them, which isn't a huge group. Those are really neat. They kind of remind me of like puffing snakes or, uh, a lot of the, uh, the boy gun things that Dan Malari brings in and stuff. So that's a really cool call you Brid. I'm a new man. Yeah. <laughs> One gallon lighter and weight too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. So, um, yeah, I was just talking about how uh, sometimes it can be difficult to uh, conceptualize uh, enrichment ideas for snakes because they don't give us the same 
behavioral feedback all the time as other things that are more expressive things with legs things with blinking eyes uh ear movement yeah yeah yeah. so reptiles are they do not emote for us reptiles are really difficult to enrich and in zoos it's so so crucial to have some sort of enrichment program and it's mandated by aza for things like primates elephants big cats a lot of birds things like that and it is emphasized as important in reptiles, but most facilities understand that with an extensive reptile collection and the difficulty of what's available, sometimes it's kind of just not discarded, but it's not emphasized as much. Right. And and that's just, it really depends on the individual. If you have somebody who's really ambitious about it, somebody who's like enrichment focused all the time, they'll come up with it. It's always possible. I've seen people train poison dart frogs to go into little, you know, cubicles for example for a fruit fly based on a train behavior i mean i've i've seen crocodilians target train and and you get some energy out that way i've done plenty of target training with with a lot of animals um and sometimes it's for my benefit and my safety but sometimes it's just to to give them more activities during the day so they're not gonna be sitting there and then develop stereotypic behaviors like pacing or things like that this is exactly the stuff that i'm learning right now for for Mm -hmm. the school and it's so cool because you've like lived Mm-hmm. this life mm-hmm. right like i'm yeah. just learning about all the theory of aza and zoo science and whatnot but like yeah. you've done this right mm-hmm. so to hear you talk about all that it's it's really cool because like i just read a paper uh, that was like a a lit review about all the research that's been done with enrichment and play behavior and mm-hmm. like reptiles and amphibians mm-hmm. and it's crazy. Like some of the things that even just little tiny little salamanders will do, you're like, holy crap. Like, how does it have the the mental yeah. capacity to know who its own kids are or like pretend to be a, a, a female to get into another male's territory? Like all these crazy things and play behavior in, mm-hmm. in monitors, you know? It's, oh, yeah. That's it's, become kind of a thing lately. I've seen yeah. a lot of people posting videos and examples of their monitors playing with like toy balls and certain objects and it gets tricky because you have to define play yeah play versus trying to eat it which is very fine line with monitors right and it's like there's there's what we think of as play as mammals right and then but then could you also just say that play is anything that doesn't have a an ecological purpose Right. Like, yeah, you have to define your parameters when you're studying that and trying to quantify it. But yeah, I mean, even to the untrained eye, you can perceive some of what's going on without having a formal education in it. But once you have a formal education in it, you really understand that, like, okay, what you're referring to as play is not play. That's a natural behavior that it would exhibit because that that ball is pink and it looks like a flower that that iguana wants to eat and it just right. happens to be too big for it to actually consume so as it's going and biting it you think it's playing but you're just it, confusing yeah. the animal thinking it's getting food so our assessment those, of it is also crucial exactly and even some of those stereotypical behaviors are it can be interpreted as play when really it's actually like more a symptom of stress deprivation and stress yeah mm-hmm. that's a yeah. big thing with uh with bears in zoos elephants in zoos and primates like huge 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 focus on all of that just because we are so in tune with the their expression and their social nature um it's it's absolutely paramount to their well-being um you know with with snakes it's really challenging because they don't always respond to new objects put in there but you can play with some of their natural history for example our big burmese python in santa barbara 
used to um, have the the zoo camp kids make big boxes or hollow out a pumpkin or something big and then throw scent like fox lure or deer scat or some of these manufactured scents on there and just put it in his enclosure and watch him figure it out and utilize it and explore it or crush it or pee on it or whatever. <laughs> and you do that and you just have to play with their natural history, understanding the enrichment yeah. of how you can enrich a species. It all boils down to what that animal's natural history of behaviors are. hundred percent. And then the other side of it, which I found super cool. We had a professional uh, come in and who does a lot of speaking at zoos and things. This is his profession is in enrichment. One of the things he talked about was acute stress can also be enriching. Mm. Um, especially yeah. when you're talking about certain animals that uh, live their life kind of on high alert. Um, you, you, there's, there's whole theories and hypotheses behind keeping those instincts and senses and responses finely tuned and using that as enrichment. So sometimes, for example, having, um, you know, a predator call for something might all of a sudden their, their ears go up and they huddle together as a herd and then this natural behavior and, and, you know, nothing bad happens from it, but it's, you know, it's a sense that we deprive from them in zoos by eliminating, uh, the presence of, of danger and, and, and death by keeping right. them well. So, you know, there's, there's whole un- trains of thought about, you know, that's part of their, their life experience. And if we're trying to keep these animals as wild as possible in these mm-hmm. settings, that, that yeah. is something they should experience. It might be important for their, their cognitive development, right? Like mm-hmm. to keep their brain sharp. Uh, if they're yeah, passing history. it on to offspring, yeah. you know, like, like, uh, like hoofstock. They need to be able to be finely tuned to evade predators here right. for danger. And if we take that away, there there's reason to believe that subsequent offspring and generations wouldn't have that strength and flight, you know? Yeah. So there's something to be said for that too. Um, you know, there's a fine line. You don't want to stress an animal out. So it has a heart attack right. and dies, but um, you know, it is, it is something that they experience. Right. That acute healthy stress, like you're talking about versus something that could actually be, harmful long sure yeah Yeah. it's it's interesting kind of on the flip side of that too a a cool one that i uh heard about recently that might be fun to try with snakes is like if you know you're gonna feed you can like and and if you keep rodents i guess or if you know where you can get this you could put like some rodent bedding that just reeks of rodent in the Mm -hmm. enclosure a few days ahead of time so that that snake starts hunting but it doesn't your get snake rewarded. will go nuts. <laughs> yeah, like the snake will start hunting days yeah. before, but won't get rewarded with the mm-hmm. rodent until later. But it, it'll be occupied mentally and physically yeah. in the interim. Um, yeah, if you've got a really uh, diurnal species that is known to be an active hunter, you can hide food in their enclosure and yeah. give them the time to figure it out. It, like I do that with my Kribo. I we'll loved hide food. when you posted the video of doing that with the Kribo. That's it's, when I was like, holy crap, I want Kribo. <laughs> it's so much fun, dude. Like, uh, especially if I'm quick feeding and I need to like give them a rodent and then move on, I'll give them a rodent and then I'll put like two more kind of spread out just really quick, just drop them somewhere in the enclosure and they're gone in 20 minutes. And I, you know, I used to be worried like, well, I don't want them to not find it. And then this gets gross in the enclosure. Right. It's never happened with them. Yeah. Never happened. And that's just a really simple form of enrichment, For you know. Sure with with our reptiles we you know the the one of the ongoing hot button topics is the the debate of racks versus cages and and it usually comes from people trying to people with good intentions good heart trying to convince 
you know, people sometimes that what's best for these animals, they're trying to do right by the animals or other people's animals or whether, you know, the delivery isn't always great. Um, and over social media it tends to lose a lot of context, but at the very least if people come from good heart. They just want to do what's right and what's best for their animals. And I think that's a, a noble, a noble cause. Um, but the, the, the facts that stand out to me the most is that when we're keeping animals in these artificial environments, even if you give them big, extensive environments, go bioactive, full spectrum lighting, seasonal, all, even if you do all of that, and that's fantastic. Bioactive. <laughs> what we what we can never duplicate for our animals is um, the need to evade prey or predators. And uh, the the need to spend all their time hunting for survival, um, right. they never have to do that. And I always talk about with this with folks. It's like you know, okay, if a snake in the wild, he doesn't have to hunt, he doesn't need to evade predators, and he's got the ideal you know climate for him right there and safe Something places to, to hide. Seek out other places what, to go. What do you right? think yeah. that snake is going to do? nothing it's going to sleep it's going to digest it's going to hang out it's going to wait for that magic hand in the sky to drop some food in you know it's not going to worry about predation it's not going to worry about injury and infection and all these things it's not pegged to do everything based on survival so when we have these animals for example in a tub how can you keep a snake in a tub it it roams all this it does all this not when it's not evading prey or predators and having to hunt because we do all that for them. Now there is something to be said for the exercise of animals and making sure right. they have good body. But even condition. in a cage, like in that, there's in that only same so much Woma you can paper, do. Like they, they track the Woma in like two days traveling a third of a mile between burrows, right? Like you're not yeah. going to replicate that in an eight foot cage either. No, you know? no never. And yeah. so there are limitations to it, of course. And and that's where I think everybody's individual approach to enrichment comes into play, taking them outside, giving them scent enrichment, just trying to do the best by them and understanding right. that at the very least, you know, if you're thinking about it and just keeping that in, in your forefront, you're at least caring about that aspect of your animal. Right. And, you know, the other side is don't harp on people that don't do it. Some people don't have the time. Some people are just breeding because that's their business and they it's just not financially you know feasible for them and they're doing it to make sure you can get an affordable snake so it's not for everyone there's you know there needs to be some understanding it's okay if people don't do it the bottom line is you can't change people that don't want to change you can't tell them how to take care of their animals and this and that as long as their animals are alive healthy whatever just move on that's my little asterisk there (laughs) yeah and and that's why i really like the the uh, controlled deprivation concept, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of just acknowledging like, no, it's never going to be the wild. Right. You're never going to even approach close to the wild. Yeah. So really what is more useful is thinking about it as controlled deprivation, right? The animal is going to be deprived. Mm-hmm. but you're in control of how much and you can take yeah. things like natural history or into account enrichment opportunities to make it the least deprived it can be given your situation and what you have to work with and like mm-hmm. i say you know every time we kind of talk about the rack thing is like a rack doesn't have to just be paper in a water bowl if you're concerned with this type of thing like if sure. you want to provide a 
less deprived environment you can you can put yeah. everything you would put in a cage except maybe human the UV hides, thing. dirt yeah. plants yeah, yeah uv hasn't caught That's up to the, tricky the part, small but it will can, i guarantee can, it we keep talking about it well yeah we'll, eventually it'll but happen you can pimp out a rack you know yeah. like you you absolutely can and mm -hmm. i don't know i think that really it needs to just also be kept in mind that a cage can be a super deprived environment and a rack can be an enriched environment and vice versa. It's, yeah. they're, they're boxes. It's just a matter yeah. of what you put in the box. It's, it's a box regardless of what it looks like, the materials it's made out of. It's a, it's a confined space. And, right. and sometimes the way it looks elicits different feelings from people. Like if it's super familiar to how they store their food, some people right. get offended by that. Um, yeah. And in that vein, like I, I don't support racks over cages or cages over racks. I, I support like, thinking of each animal's natural history mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. and on an individual basis and giving that animal what it needs yeah. you know like we don't have to think of it in terms of one over the other it's like what is this snake what does it do and how can i best yeah provide for it yeah dave kaufman actually just had a video come out um the other day and he was at jeremy turgeon's place uh out in new hampshire jeremy turgeon is Brassman reptiles he works uh, for Nerd. He's a manager there. And he keeps an eclectic variety of snakes. And he had uh, an animal that was, oddly enough, a weird hybrid. It was a, it was a Woma um, jungle carpet what? mix. It was, yeah, it was wacky looking. Uh, uh, but I, I would say it was probably, you know, two inches in diameter and maybe a four and a half foot snake, right? Probably would do really well in a 41 quart or bigger. And, uh, he opens a, a six quart tub. Maybe it was a 15 quart, but it's a small tub. And this thing is crammed into its water bowl in a small little ball. And he begins to explain that this animal really does not like anything else. He's tried putting it in larger enclosures, more appropriately sized, and it goes off feed. I have a jungle that does the same thing, although she's not that big. But it's, it's something to be said. I Years ago, when I was still keeping jags, I had this beautiful jungle jag that I got from a uh, uh, my friend Ryan Dumas of Rad Reptiles. Um, I don't think he works with Jags anymore. But anyway, it, I wanted a Jungle Jag. It was my first one. Um, and uh, raised her up for a couple of years. And by the time she was of appropriate size to go into a four-foot cage, I moved her. Mm -hmm. She instantly went off food, high stress. Uh, and part of that is the Jag sensitivity. Um, I tried keeping her going, getting her comfortable, more hides, uh, different prey, things like that. And she just, she crashed. And so I put her back yeah. in a rack and, uh, and she continued to crash after that. She just, mm. she didn't make it. Um, she died from the stress of going into a cage. Yeah. Ultimately. I mean, you hear these, these stories, you know, it's not rare that some animals just do better in a rack. You know, it, it, it happens. Um, and they've done experiments, in my lab before I joined where they had the super fancy naturalistic enclosure connected to a typical sterile paper plane enclosure. Right. And then, okay. And then <laughs> your turn. Um, and compared where those animals chose to be right. Equal opportunity on, on either side. And um, I would have to go back and, and double check to, to give you the precise results, but there were animals in that group that just preferred the sterile side, right? Like 
that it just goes back to the point that there are generalizations we can make about animals that that apply right like on a species level but in every case you have to look at the individual and every individual is going to be different um they aren't you know robots like a woma is not a woma is not a woma like they are individuals and and so that has to be kept in mind as well that was so fast i'm speaking very good um <laughs> but yeah just talking about how each animal is an individual and yeah. if you gave every animal equal opportunity to choose uh, a naturalistic environment or a more conventional sterile keeper environment you're going to have some animals that pick both you know mm -hmm. it's just that's that's the way it is <laughs> yeah some animals well we the other thing that's worth worth saying is the animals we are working with for the most part are uh, are not wild caught right. so what they know from day 1 is the artificial environment they've been brought into from the beginning. Um, so some animals are very confident and roll with whatever you give them. And that can be species specific or individual specific. Um, some animals don't, some animals are, you know, not as confident. They're, they're happy with what's familiar. And as soon as you start deviating from that, if at least too dramatically fast, you'll get a bad response for sure. And it, again, it's it's every animal's uh, individual personality. And then within the species, there's kind of like a subset of normal personalities. But there's always right. exceptions to the rules because these exactly. rules are made by people. Animals are just what we are quantifying these rules around. And sometimes yep. we don't have it all figured out. And yeah. it's perfectly encapsulated by that comment there. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So um, some genetic mutations have influence on this, obviously. Uh, things that are more prone to stress or, you know, deficiencies because essentially morphs are broken genes. So sometimes that comes with um, challenges in, in their biology. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's something to be, to be considered. I don't know. There's just, <laughs> there's no one approach to keeping any animal. There are certainly wrong approaches to keeping certain animals, <laughs> but I mean, we talk about it all the time and, and the guys on NPR and other podcasts talk about it all the time. You know, how you keep a, a jungle carpet in California is different to how you keep a jungle carpet yeah. in Texas. Uh, you keep it one in Maine, whatever. So exactly. Yeah. Yep. Got to pay attention to your animals. Yeah. On an individual basis. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, there's, they're, they're always teaching us stuff. We just have to, you just have to be looking and listening and, and open our open our minds to be able to, to catch it and then improve our keeping. And that's the other thing where where the hobby is at, where we are at in our collection is not a, a stagnant, permanent, still time. It's this constant nonstop progression. So you're never done. You're never done improving husbandry. You're never done learning about the animals and understanding them. You're never done. And, and the hobby is progressing and the hobby is never done. 100%. Technology is improving all of this stuff. So, you know, you just got to roll with it and stay with the times the best you can, you know, yeah. and then just do right by your animals. Well said. Yeah. I agree completely. Yeah. <laughs> and even on like a much bigger scale on a macro scale, the animals are changing too. I mean, there's it's definitely true. an element of of uh, artificial selection and captivity and mm -hmm. 
these these animals are going to look a lot different if we give them a few generations in human care. It's just it's yeah. just bound to happen. It's like know? a small uh, slice of the the overall process that we refer to as domestication. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. It's just uh, at a different stage. Yeah. Consciously or unconsciously. We're yeah, selecting what, for something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. Oh man, I I can't wait for warmer weather to come back so I can start cleaning these females and uh, their cages are getting so gross, man. <laughs> I'm letting them get dirty. I'm Foster like the funk. I'm debulking the gnarly masses as I find them, but like <laughs> you know, urine and scenting and sperm plugs and all the uh, the glass is dirty. I'm just like, ah, I need to clean all this. Yeah. But like, I know I'm gonna mess with some females that don't want to be messed with. I so, feel like my Brutal's pythons haven't taken a dump since November. So. Yeah, mine neither. <laughs> they haven't made any mess in yeah, three it's months. Just easy. It's just water changes and yeah, yeah, weekly water changes and then move, but moving them the into the bathroom. Yeah. yeah, moving them into their cold space at night. Yeah, yeah. that's why I asked you this morning. I, I wanted to double mm-hmm. check when you were planning on feeding your centralians first because I don't want to. Uh, work out of turn with this overall project parameters right. assuming my animals uh are able sure. to participate yeah 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 so like uh like i've said for me two months down at the super cold mm-hmm. which i started on january 10th so on okay. march 10th uh i'm gonna warm them back up to normal over the course of about two weeks it can be a lot quicker than how you drop okay. them down okay uh and then once they're back up uh the plan is to feed first really small because the digestive system i guess can atrophy a little bit during this time Um, okay so kind of want to prime it with a a little meal uh that's what nick told me anyway um and then more of like a normal meal after that and then something big after that and kind of doing that in a pretty quick period of time for to stimulate follicle growth um so those three meals within what, like a two week period? Yeah, exactly. Within oh, a couple wow. of weeks. And then with that last meal though, you want to feed pretty jumbo to trigger a shed. Um, because what that shed is going to do is it's going to, in theory, sync up the male and female cycles so that they are ready for each other. Um, and uh, just anecdotally, it's it seems like a freshly shed snake is a really good aphrodisiac for the other mm-hmm. snake all mm-hmm. those smells are really fresh mm-hmm. um so that's the plan <laughs> mm. interesting yeah. well i'm gonna have to make sure i stay on your schedule i think i did start um moving my bread lady into the the cold bathroom a little bit before you but it wasn't getting cold then i was still trying to figure out where i was at so i don't think that will throw anything off because yeah, ultimately January is when I started getting the really um, cold evenings below 65. Right. So for sure, for sure. And yeah, they seem and- completely fine. Like they're not losing any body condition. They're still active. They thermoregulate. They get their warmth during the day, mm-hmm. um, access to water and all that stuff. But man, they're, they're bombshells. They're so tough. They're freezing cold when I pick them up in the morning and they're like, what are we doing? We're moving. Where are we going? <laughs> So. Yeah, I know. I, I kind of got a little bit of satisfaction on one of the nights that I got them like around 49 because 
Gosh. when I picked him up, they really were just like, <laughs> like cold, you know, the yeah. tongue flick looked like a super slow, like a yeah. Ganya Soma. This, <laughs> yeah. uh, so I was like, ah, gotcha. You finally actually feel something. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, I, you know, they're fine. They warm yeah. back up and yeah. back to normal. <laughs> I think one of the previous uh, streams, when we were talking about this, uh, somebody asked and I didn't address it, but I saw it in the chat and we moved on was uh, if mine have mellowed out since oh, moving them into the cold and they absolutely have i don't use a hook with either of them anymore and i don't know if sure. that's because of the cold or because i'm getting hands on with them every day yeah it could be it could be both that, yeah i'm sure that, when yeah. the heat comes back on and food starts being offered it'll be <laughs> dodgy for the first month totally and and i forget do you feel like a lot of the bites from them are just because are like feeding bites they just think mm-hmm. everything's food mm-hmm. okay i just yeah. like to call them jerks because they're mean <laughs> yeah i'm sure if probably when you start feeding them again they'll they'll get that drive back to oh yeah to bite everything <laughs> well and yeah and then the other thing is with the collection this size i'm not handling stuff all the time you know yeah so there's certain animals that get my attention like my apodora i handle all the time mm-hmm. he's a sweet well, that's one that you're definitely going to want to have be a sweetheart when it's mm-hmm. giant Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually have been treating him like a monitor lizard as far as my uh, socialization approach goes. Uh, I don't come overhead. I don't just pick him up. I let him make the first move towards me. And then I actually do a lot of that uh, hand, flat hand under the chin stuff that you can do with mm. monitors to build some some trust. Nice. And he's never once struck at me. He's never once tried to bite me. I've definitely like opened his enclosure to him being like startled and like flattening his head and kind of hissing. And then I do that and I can turn that off right away. Nice. Um, and they're he's really just, smart snakes. I'm, I'm oh, sure, he's amazing. I'm sure that he's learning your, yeah. like what you're about, you know? Yeah. Even when yeah. food's present in the room, he doesn't, he's not, uh, he's not snappy. He's very calculated. Very cool. Yeah, that I, would be a species I would be really curious how they respond to target training and, and things like that. Just because they have such cognitive ability. I bet you they would uh, excel at yeah, that. For I think sure. So too. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, well, I'm sure uh, if they become available, you know, down the road, somebody like Lori Torini would be excellent yeah. to, to put them to the test. There's a, another grad student in my lab that is working with Lori uh, on oh, nice. a thesis around training false water cobra. So I'm really excited to see what, what her findings are. Dude, falsies are the new MBKs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I remember when you used to be able to get a falsie for 2 to 250 and that was within the last 10 years and yeah. now they're, you know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, he was saying that kind of average price on just kind of average grade animals is anywhere from like 350 to 4 and now the high yellows and hypos are 5 600 plus. Yeah, I, I think you could probably attribute a lot of that spike to Snake Discovery and Clint, right? They yeah. both have falsies that they featured pretty prominently. Yeah. Um, I see the, I see them cause uh hobby shifts very dramatically even in a oh, small yeah. way like when he did that video on the uh the green skinks, the emerald green skinks, all mm-hmm. of a sudden uh, everybody came into the shop like the next day and bought all <laughs> the ones we had, like every single one of them. Yeah. I so. mean, their voice carries for sure. Cause even yeah. if it's not just the immediate audience, like when the immediate audience gets interested, they'll tell all their friends and, and mm-hmm. like, oh, I want one of those. And then everybody yeah. wants it, you know? Yeah. It's great. It's an awesome phenomenon to see going on right now because yeah. there's so much positive benefit and exploration of all these obscure species. 
for sure. Yeah. So. And I feel like those two folks specifically represent them pretty accurately because that's the danger mm-hmm. is if you if you pass on misinformation to an audience of that size, then you, you run into trouble. <laughs> yeah. I think they're both pretty smart enough to know that their audience is huge and the impact they have. So they're just pretty straightforward and honest people with yeah. what they know and what they've experienced and they just show it as they, as they experience it. So um, it's uh yeah, they're, they're good folks in the hobby, good positive influences. Yeah. I, I've really grown to, uh, to appreciate um, what they both do for the hobby, even though it's kind of not in, in the same vein as what I am. And it's not, sure. I'm not really their target yeah. audience. No, it's se. not necessarily for folks like us at this right. point. Yeah. Right. But so. it represents the spaces that we, you know, mm-hmm. inhabit in a good way. Right. Yeah. We talked last week about how people view the hobby, right? Mm-hmm. It's important and people like them can shift that narrative a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we. I think we, as a hobby, owe good, positive role models like that a lot of thanks. Yeah. Um, a year or so ago, Emily did a video on her Madagascar giant hognose, and mm. uh, as much as I appreciate them getting, you know, the just attention, I think that caused me six months of headache. Oh yeah. Everyone's like, "Hey, do you have any hognose for sale? <laughs> hey, is that hognose for sale? Hey, reading hognose? Hey, do you have any baby? Like literally nonstop, yeah. and it still happens today. And um. I think uh, I think it opens doors for people. I think it opens their eyes. But what is hard to convey over the internet, even in video form, is just how difficult it is to get some of these species and the fact that some of them aren't established in the hobby. Right. Um, and so it's not just like, oh, you can't just go order a Madagascar hognose. You can't just do that. Yeah. It's not a thing. You <laughs> right. know, you have to have your your ears to the the ground and and just know the right people who are involved and jump on it when the opportunity is available, if it ever is. And, and then hope that everybody else is working towards a good goal. Like I'm constantly torn about throwing in the towel on my Madagascar giant hogs. Cause so many other people know about them and there's other people with pairs and there's a couple folks finally breeding them and space is always a premium around here, but yeah. like I love them and I want to have more success breeding with them. So they're still here. Sure. I've almost sold them twice. <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah. fun. Very but uh, cool. I like to think about how different shows and content avenues influence the market. It's very interesting to me. Super interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. And and for the size of the market, if you will, like mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to tell when when something is shifting, at yeah. least in the US specifically, you know. Yeah. The MBK phenomenon, the Dumerals Boa thing that you guys mm-hmm. talked about mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. on your podcast. It's, yeah. It's all very visible. Yeah, absolutely. So good times ahead. I keep telling people that come into the shop when they're first discovering the hobby, it's potentially one of the most exciting times to be in the hobby. You know, comparably considering how exciting it probably was 30 years ago when everything was being imported and nobody had heard of that stuff. So right. it's like the next exciting frontier. Brandon, don't do this to me. <laughs> Oh, buddy. <laughs> we know what website Lucas is pulling up no, right I now. I just dropped so much money on a cage. It's, uh, I can't. <laughs> uh, just, you know, say it's for the university study and uh, get that tax write-off for the university there. Huh? <laughs> Got to sell my kidneys. <laughs> How many do you have? You only need one, know. right? <laughs> <laughs> Which one filters alcohol? I might need two. No, that's the liver. <laughs> yeah, keep that. That's important. 
Uh, does a gallbladder have any value on the market? You don't need those. I don't know, man. Shoot. <laughs> oh, only man. fans. Oh boy. Kidding. We've, we've gone off the rails. Kidding. We've gone off the rails. But before we before we close out, because um, we have crossed the two hour mark, which is sort of uh, yes. inadvertently become our our trademark for this particular show. Uh, we definitely want to close out saying thank you to everybody who's been tuning in uh, in the chat, submitting questions, or just simply watching and listening while they're cleaning cages or at work. I know a lot of people reach out and express thanks for having something to occupy that time. Um, definitely go check out the NPR store on Teespring for any carpets and coffee gear, swag, any NPR swag. Um, what else? Don't forget to check out the NPR network on YouTube. Go like and subscribe. All of these live streams we do get posted over there. And uh, there is going to be plenty more to come. Uh, and then also go uh, tap into everything that is the NPR network and all the podcasts. Uh, what is it? NPR, uh, Student of the Serpent, Hybrid Corner, Cliff Notes, Carpet Cliff Notes, Herp History. What else is there? Coming soon, Field Herping Podcast. The, yep, the Field Herping Podcast is coming soon. And then I think there's two more still uh, still in the pipe. Yes. So they, they, for the most part, all have their own RSS feeds. So you have to go subscribe to them individually with the exception of Herp History. I think that right, one's going to on be directly under the NPR feed. Yeah. Um, so yeah. tune into all of that. And, uh, oh, Patreon. Don't forget to go check out the NPR Patreon. If you just go to Morelia Python Radio, search that up on their Patreon. You can, for $5 a month, buy us a cup of coffee and uh, and just help support a good cause. Again, we are working on some more tiers, some more offerings and things we can give back to everybody who supports uh, Eric and Owen's legacy, so to speak, in that way. Because I have to remind everyone it was, it was sort of me who pushed them into doing the Patreon. So if you think they're selling out and you hate that people use Patreon, direct your anger towards me. It will not <laughs> even be acknowledged by Eric and Owen. And it's, it's a way for, for us to uh, convince Eric and Owen that they, they deserve the praise and, and, uh, and just, you know, they're going on their 10th year doing this stuff. So the community they built is applaud, applaudable. Like it's just amazing. So, and besides, um, hate just makes Owen stronger. It's, it's not worth your yes. time. <laughs> yeah. The more you the more you direct it. your anger at Owen, the more he's going to mess with you. <laughs> he, he's like the, the big Donkey Kong, King Kong gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, all jokes aside, that's just how we try and keep, uh, keep the love going towards them and try and validate all the hard work they've done. And it's our way of thanking them. And so, yeah. 100%. Also continue to subscribe to riley's channel he just got monetized very excited oh yeah i forgot yeah congratulations um, or thanks, eligible man. i should say right yeah so yeah. the adsense just got approved and now i just need uh youtube's approval that all of my previous content and what i do follows community guidelines which it does Sweet. and it just takes a, a few days they say and uh and then i'll be able to earn you know a few cents Woo! yeah yep so we'll get the NPR network up to that point one day soon too, hopefully. For so sure. don't forget to go subscribe. And maybe the Centralian Exotics channel. Go check that yeah, out. Yeah, go check that <laughs> out. And you can, can find I... all of these under the playlists on the NPR network because we put it all in similar playlists. They're uh they're they're all part of the family. Big happy family. Even though, <laughs> even though dad never came today. Yeah, and Owen beats us. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Excellent.
You want to throw out your stuff? Uh, okay. Uh, I'm Lucas, and you can find me at com or Centralian underscore exotics on Instagram. And all of my relevant stuff can uh, be found through that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not as fancy. I do not have my own domain, and my website is not up to date. So I'm not even going to throw that out there. <laughs> um, but you can find me on Instagram on Riley's underscore reptiles, YouTube under Riley Jimison. Uh, yeah. I think that's about it. So excellent. We did it. We made we it through. It. Yeah. We gave uh, pride. We gave Eric the day off, even though he's actually working. Yeah, that's right. So. The day off from fun things. Yes. Yes. We've, we've sucked all the fun out of his day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Good times. Thanks yep. everybody. Thank you again, everyone. Thanks Lucas. Good to chat. Always good. See you next week. All righty. Peace. Bye.